The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. Hey, everybody. Here I am, finally here. Wow, so glad to be here with all of you. Thank you for waiting. I'll explain what the delay was. Not a huge deal. It's just a huge deal in the fact that I didn't get to get on here and talk to you all as soon as I wanted to. But now I'm here. I'm here for the evening. We're going to have a great, lovely conversation here in my lovely Brooklyn apartment in front of the famous bookshelf. Uh, my wife is at an art exhibit tonight, so we have the apartment all to ourselves. We're going to have a great conversation. So hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. We're going to talk about all kinds of stuff tonight. It's going to be a wild, wild conversation, but let's, let's roll, folks. Thanks for waiting. I appreciate the wait, and we are going to talk about a lot of important things. Spoken of the American century. I say that the century on which we are entering can be and must be the century of the common man. A radical redistribution of economic power. I mean, we know that racism is just is, is a byproduct of capitalism. Everything will be all right if everything was put back in the hands of the people. We need a government that will make sure Americans are taken care of and organize the economy to serve the people, not the profits of a wealthy few. We now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. We got to start getting out there with the people. Get out of the movement and get to the masses. We need a government of action. Hey, everybody. So welcome. Um, and, uh, yeah, the way it works here uh, is I give my opening remarks, uh, then from there we do the roll call, and after that I answer your super chat questions for the rest of the night. Um, that's kind of how this show works. Um, I give my opening remarks, my opening remarks are then followed, uh, at that point, followed by uh, the roll call, and then I answer super chats. We've already got three super chats that came in before we started, since we were off to a late start. Uh, so because of that, uh, we're already on the roll. So if you have something you want me to talk about in the second half of the show, all you have to do is shoot me a super chat. I will write it down and I will answer it in the second half of the show. So that's how it's going to work. Uh, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be a great show tonight. Glad everyone is here to join us. Uh, we are a great community. These are rough times. These are hard times, but we are standing strong against the wave of imperialist lies and deceptions. I'm going to bring the camera a little bit closer. Against the wave of imperialist lies and deceptions, we are standing strong. So uh, with no further ado, I guess I'll just jump right into it. First things first, uh, the reason that it took me so long uh, to do this uh, do this stream, the reason we didn't start at 8 like we originally planned, the reason we started now at 8.50, um, is because uh, basically, you know, I have had in the last couple of days, there's been some issues with my internet. I don't know if you're aware, but... You know, it's been freezing a lot and I do streams and that's really important. So uh, I made an appointment uh, with the uh, Spectrum uh, cable company to come and, you know, check out our router. Uh, we've had this this uh, this this wireless thing for a long time and for them to come and check it out. And the appointment was supposed to be at a certain time and that time passed and they weren't there. And, you know, I didn't know what what to do. So I called them. I didn't know, are they going to come later and interrupt the stream? Like what's going to happen? Well, finally the guy came, uh, 30 minutes late. He came in, uh, he checked our, our internet. He basically showed us that there were some parts that were loose 
and all of that. But there were also some other problems with it. And we should probably, we've had this, this, uh, this router for a long time. So we should probably get a new one anyway. And anyhow, he ran some tests and that's what delayed us. We were making sure that our internet uh, and our streaming technology was all good. Uh, the guy uh, from the cable company who came to check out the internet streaming technology came about a, a half hour to 40 minutes later than we thought he was going to come. And so that kind of that delayed everything. But now uh, he is gone. Our internet is working perfectly fine. Uh, we're able to stream and that's what's going on here. You know, and that's one of the downsides of all of this, right? I mean, it's like, you know, when you have somebody coming over to the house to, to fix something, you know, you can't just start streaming. And then if they're a half hour late, you can't really do the stream you plan to do. And and that's what happened. But uh, he was a very nice guy, uh, came by, uh, very polite, very helpful. Um, we are probably going to get the new a new box anyway, just because we've had it for so long. But uh, he assured us the issue was not related to the box. But uh, regardless, our internet's working just perfectly fine now. And I just wanted to get that out of the way. Uh, so that's an important thing. So this Ukraine mess continues and we're constantly giving people updates on it um and i've got plenty to say about that that i will say later in the broadcast but i actually wanted to draw your attention to another ongoing theme uh that we've talked about many times on these streams and that would be our great vice president kamala harris dun 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 dun, dun. oh that's the president's song but she probably wants it anyway uh, we're we're going to talk a little bit about the latest developments around Kamala Harris. Um, right. right. Ukraine, Russia, acting, Soviet history, U.S. schools. So I don't know if people saw the latest developments with Kamala Harris. Not as important as like a war going on in Ukraine, but important. Uh, so uh, there's a new book that's about to be published by people associated with the New York Times. So it's not like conservative media. It's not not some crank uh, conspiracy thing. It's the New York Times. And according to the New York Times, uh, we they're confirming what we already know, which is there is intense tension between President Joe Biden and his staff and Vice President Kamala Harris and her staff. Uh, there's ongoing tension between these two staffs. Um, and the tension, uh, really confirms everything that I've always said about Kamala Harris. I have looked into Kamala Harris's life. I was on to her before she ever got elected vice president. And Kamala Harris is a sadistic narcissist. Uh, you know, she is a very, very dangerous person. And I'll get into why that is. If you're new to this community, you'll, you won't have heard all of this before. She's a sadistic narcissist. And I wrote this book. This book was published in September of 2020. Before she was elected vice president, I wrote this book. I did some investigation on her when she was first running for president, uh, you know, when she was running. Uh, and I got some inside information from somebody who knows her father. And based on what I was told and the leads I was given by somebody who knows her father, and based on, you know, what went on during the Democratic primary, and based on some other information I received, I put together this book. Basically, the thesis of my book is that Kamala Harris is a sadistic narcissist and that the worst of left-wing politics, the worst elements of left-wing politics are kind of incarnated in Kamala Harris. And then if we want to rescue the United States from the disaster of capitalism, we need to reinvent the socialist movement to get away from this. I talked about divisions in the ruling class. 
I talked about a lot of the themes. This book is a lot about a lot more than Kamala Harris, but it's three short essays. You know, the first one is about uh, about leftism and what leftism means. The second one is about psychology. And the third one is about U.S. foreign policy. Uh, and I tie together all the loose ends and explain where Kamala Harris came from. This is, this is my book. And it was very well reviewed. The Communist Daily Newspaper of the United Kingdom, The Morning Star. Uh, Helen Mercer uh, uh, of The Morning Star gave it a very smashing review. She loved the book. Other people have read the book and said it blew their minds. Uh, the folks at Twink Rev read it. Peter Coffin read it. They, 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 this book this book is a big deal. And you can bet, I, I'm sure, because there is so little out there about Kamala Harris. I am sure her staff has read this book. I'm sure that the staff has read this book and they don't like it. And uh, they're not happy about it. Uh, because, you know, it's, it's really wild. So when Barack Obama was running for president, we learned everything there was to know about Barack Obama. We learned about Barack Obama's pastor. We learned about Barack Obama's school. We learned about Barack Obama's mother. We learned everything there was to know about Barack Obama. Kamala Harris, nothing. We learned that she's a congresswoman. She's a U.S. senator. She used to be an attorney general in California, and she's a woman of color. And we should all feel really empowered that she's been picked as VP. And that's it. No one talks anything about her. They're like, yeah, her mom is from India. Her dad is from Jamaica and she gives really, really good speeches. No, no, no. There is so much there about Kamala Harris. There is so much there that is so important. And this person who knew her father, you know, tuned me in uh, about about how important it is, uh, you know, how much there is to know about Kamala Harris. And wow, there's a lot there. There's a lot there, folks. A lot. So, so lately, what I said in this book has been confirmed, right? In the fall, a bunch of her staffers quit. A bunch of the people who worked for her quit. And they gave interviews about why they quit. And they said she subjects them to soul-crushing criticism. Soul-crushing criticism. When they make a mistake, she viciously humiliates them in front of the other staffers and degrades them. They also said that all the other all the other folks on Capitol Hill and all the other folks in, in Congress and in the White House do not want to be associated with Harris people. So if you want to get a job in D.C., you don't work for Kamala Harris because everyone hates the Harris people who work for her because they're unpleasant and obnoxious like she is. Um, and the other thing that they said is she refuses to be prepped for interviews. She refuses to be prepped for interviews. Right. So. They don't practice the interviews with her and, and get her you know, on point and get her talking points in order. However, if she ever makes a mistake in an interview, which she's done many times, she's made many mistakes. Her interviews are embarrassing. Whenever she makes a mistake in an interview, she never takes responsibility for it. It's always somebody else's fault. So again, does that sound like a sadistic narcissist, soul-crushing criticism, never taking responsibility for any mistakes, refusing to be prepped? Because why would the great Kamala need any prep? Uh, she, you know, she very much fits everything that I said. So now the latest developments, these are the latest things. So there's a new book that's, that's about to be published and we are getting a taste of it by the people of the New York Times. And they describe, you know, the tension between the Kamala Harris uh, staff and the Biden staff. And some of it, it's, it's so stupid. Okay, it, it makes it makes you want to laugh, but then you have to go, wait a second. This woman could be having her finger on the nuclear button. This isn't funny. Um, it, it's not funny, but it's terrifying, actually. But it's funny. If it's funny if this was in a movie, it would be funny if this was in a sitcom, but it's like this is real life. This woman has her finger on the nuclear button. It's not funny. 
So here's the, late, the latest thing we heard. The latest thing we heard uh, is that, that Kamala Harris is angry that people don't stand up when she enters the room. Have you guys heard about this? You know, so when the president, when heads of state enter the room, when the president or the king or the prime minister, it's generally done across the world. When a head of state enters the room, people stand up, right? Just kind of like in a courtroom in the United States. When the judge enters, you rise for the judge. Kamala Harris is not president of the United States. She is the vice president. But she apparently is greatly offended that when she enters the room and Joe Biden's people are there, they stand up for Joe Biden, but they don't stand up for her. Well, they don't stand up for her because she's not the president. She's not the president, but yet she wants people to stand up for her, even though she's only the vice president. People didn't stand up for Dick Cheney. People didn't stand up for Joe Biden when he was vice president. People didn't stand up for Mike Pence. But for some reason, she takes great offense, great offense at the fact that people do what they have been doing since the beginning of time, since the beginning of the country, which is they stand up for the president and they don't stand up for the vice president. She takes great offense at this. Great, great offense. Um, another thing that we found out uh, is that uh, Kamala Harris um, also, apparently, and this is, this, is, this is great, Kamala Harris was angry that when she was photographed for the cover of Vogue magazine, I mean, yeah, I, mean I can't get over this, when she was photographed for the cover of Vogue magazine, they showed her wearing tennis shoes. But the question is, why did she wear tennis shoes to the photo shoot if she did not want to be photographed wearing tennis shoes? It is one of the most bizarre things. So apparently they were having a photo shoot and she picked you know, her staff and others, they picked out the outfits and she went to the photo shoot with tennis shoes on, with socks and, you know, these laced up tennis shoes and went and did the photo shoot. Everything was fine. And then she saw the cover of Vogue magazine with her on it and it showed that she was wearing tennis shoes and she was furious, furious that she looked like a child that's unfair, made her look less serious. They're not taking her seriously. They showed her tennis shoes. And everyone on her staff was like, you know, why didn't you tell us she didn't want him to see the tennis shoes? You did know you were going there to get your picture taken. You did talk and negotiate with them about the outfit. If you, you were upset that you were going to wear tennis shoes, why didn't you say anything? Well, there you go. Uh, Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris is very angry that Vogue magazine took a picture of her in tennis shoes after she showed up for the photo shoot wearing tennis shoes. Um, wow, wow. The other thing, uh, apparently Kamala Harris's staff, uh, they have accused Biden's staff of being racist. Uh, you know, Biden's staff tends to be mostly white people. Kamala Harris's staff is mostly people of color. And so Kamala Harris was telling her staff that Joe Biden's staff are racist. 
Now, you know, that's not to say I, I don't know what went on. I mean, is it possible that Joe Biden's staff did something racially insensitive? Or is it possible that, that you know, the guy who wrote the crime bill might have some racists and former cops or, or you know, bigoted people on his staff? Of course, that's not the issue. The issue isn't whether or not Biden's staff actually has racists on it. The issue is that if you're the vice president and you are working with the president, and the president's team has to work with your team, and your team has to work with his team, it's probably not a smart move, even if there is tension there, to meet with your staff and say to them, just so you know, this office of this guy that we work with, who's like really important, who's actually like kind of our boss, he's a racist. Not really good for business relations. You know, uh, you know, if, I mean, generally, you know, if you're, you know, if you're running a company or a, a government bureaucracy or an office, generally you want your staff to get along as well as possible with the other departments, right? That's generally the idea, right? You want them to get along really well with the other departments. So having a meeting and declaring the other guy's staff, the president's staff to be racist is not going to make things move smoothly. So so we're finding out about this, uh, and this just reveals how much of a joke the Biden administration is, how much of a joke Kamala Harris is in so many ways. Uh, this is, and it's confirming everything I told you guys. Everything I told you guys is coming absolutely true. I told you, I told you that Kamala Harris was a sadistic narcissist, and I wrote a whole book making the case after doing some thorough investigation, after being tipped off by someone who knows her father. After really digging into Kamala Harris, uh, you know, I mean, this was my pandemic book. I guess I wrote two pandemic books, this and Bread Tube Serves Imperialism. And I dug into who Kamala Harris is, what motivates Kamala Harris, uh, the source of her pain, the source of, of the rage that we see beneath her. I mean, she is full of rage. She is an angry woman. That woman wants to kill. She is angry. And I'm not exaggerating there. She actually tried to tried to, you know, you know, block evidence to keep an innocent man on death row. So I'm not exaggerating when I say she wants to kill. I mean, she actually wants to kill. That's not hyperbole. Um, but I, I dug into all of this, right? And so I, I, I put that book together and the book made a little bit of a splash, um, you know, and then everything I said turned out to be correct. Her father did not come to see her sworn in as vice president. That's a big deal. Her mother's deceased. So her only living parent Dr. Dr. Donald Harris, who lives in Jamaica, did not come to her inauguration. That's a big deal. Um, what else? And now we find out about the soul-crushing criticism, and then we find out about, about the, the narcissism and the refusing preps for interviews. Everything I said in that book is true. Just like the BreadTube book. I wrote a book speculating uh, that BreadTube was some kind of counter gang cultivated to, you know, to serve one wing of the ruling class, uh, to beat back the Trump movement, but also to control left wing conversation and control the conversation around Marxism and socialism. And it was cultivated probably by one wing of the ruling class and by the intelligence agencies. And then Kit Clattenburg and Max Blumenthal of Gray Zone uh, came out with the smoking gun. Abigail Thorne, Philosophy Tube, one of the founders, one of the original bread tubers, is on the payroll of the British royal family. 
of British intelligence and of all kinds of, uh, you know, of, of entities. She's supported by entities that are tied deeply to the British ruling class and the British state. And we have the smoking gun. We have an actual document to prove this. Uh, you know, that basically there's a there's a foundation that's been involved in, you know, spreading propaganda about Syria that's paid by the British government and the British royal family. And that foundation pays Abigail Thorne. So when I said bread tube serves imperialism, just based on observing their behavior and the way they conduct themselves. Uh, now we have the smoking gun that no, literally bread tube is paid to serve imperialism. I told you that uh, I tend to be right about these kind of things. Uh, I tend to be right about these things. I predicted that we were going to start moving towards some form of illiberalism to defend liberalism, and that is frighteningly coming true during this whole Ukraine crisis. But anyhow, we're going to talk about Kamala Harris. I'm going to get into what I talked to in the book about her personality and all that. And, and in order to, to do that, I am going to show you this latest clip. This is this is the latest clip uh, uh, of Kamala Harris making making moves around and people are just kind of laughing about it. People love to laugh about this, right? We do this. We just laugh about these things. And it's funny. I mean, it's a funny clip. I mean, it's like, what the, what the F is she talking about? But, but I want to analyze it a little more seriously because I can tell you what's going on here. And there's, there's a few possibilities about what's going on here and none of them are good. Take a look at this. This is, this was from Monday when Kamala Harris was speaking on Monday in Louisiana. And I, and we were all um, doing a tour of the library here and um, talking about the significance of the passage of time, right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there is great significance to the passage of time in terms of what we need to do to lay these wires, what we need to do to create these jobs. And there is such great significance to the passage of time when we think about a day in the life of our children. Wow. Wow. Significance of the passage of time. Like, we've got to think about the significance of the passage of time. You got to think about, like, the significance of the passage of time. Like, I was thinking about the passage of time and the significance of the passage of time. And it, like, blows my mind, man. Have you ever thought about the significance of the passage of time? Oh, my God, the significance of the passage of time. man! I mean, is she on drugs? Possibly. That is one very real possibility here. One very, very real possibility is that Kamala Harris is on drugs. Um, and I, I, I'm not saying that lightly. I don't think it's she's on drugs because she likes to get high with her friends. I think she may be on drugs uh, because that's a trendy thing now. Uh, for psychological treatments, uh, they're into microdosing hallucinogens. That's a really trendy thing now. Uh, people go to their super expensive Hollywood people go to their super expensive therapists and their super expensive trauma treatment people, and they go there and they say, "Oh, you know, you have trauma in your past. You have pain. Well, what you need is some LSD. What you need is some peyotine." What you need is some DMT, and they give people hallucinogens now. It's really trendy. It's super trendy. And especially in California, where Kamala Harris comes from, especially, uh, you know, especially among people that are dealing with issues like trauma, which we'll get into. There's plenty of that in Kamala Harris's past. And it appears that, that it's very possible that Kamala Harris could be using psychedelics uh, for some kind of mental health treatment. 
Uh, and that what happened was that, uh, you know, the way those things work is that, you know, you obviously trip, you take the drugs and you trip. Um, but other than that, um, you know, you have what are called uh, flashbacks where you're just driving down the road and all of a sudden you're tripping. Um, you know, and that's one of the dangers of using hallucinogens is not only, you know, I mean, people, people set aside the time where they're going to hallucinogen, you know, they're going to have their LSD trip or whatever, but then a week later, they're just living their normal life. And all of a sudden they're hallucinating and it can be very, very scary. Um, and you don't expect it. What if you're driving? What if you're, you know, you know, it can be very, very dangerous, right? So it's very possible that Kamala Harris has been using, she's been microdosing hallucinogens and some kind of psychological treatment. And that in that moment, you know, she, she had a flashback, an LSD flashback. She had a, an unplanned trip and she just started tripping out. The other thing that's possible, the other thing that's possible is that Kamala Harris has been hypnotized to some degree or other. Um, and that's very possible as well, right? Hypnosis is also very, very trendy in the same circles, right? And that the way hypnosis tends to work, you know, you have certain phrases that kind of trigger you um, and that, that to some degree or other, some, some hypnotist or some psychological counselor or psychologist or somebody who's doing some kind of mental health work with Kamala Harris has, has hypnotized her and she gets into a hypnotic state. And, you know, I'll, I'll just pull that clip up again. And I, and we were all... Look at the eyes. I'm doing a tour of the library. Look at the eyes. Look at the eyes. I'm going to turn the audio off. Look at the eyes. Look at the eyes. She's not all there. She's not all there. She is not all there. Look at the, look at the eyes, right? Now, maybe she just didn't get a good night's sleep the night before, but she ain't all there. She ain't all there, and she's talking about the significance of the passage of time, man. Uh, and she ain't all there. Something's going on there. I don't know what it is, but her eyes are glossed over. She's repeating, like, the significance of the passage of time, man. Something ain't right. Something is not right in this clip, right? The eyes are not functioning normally. The significance of the passage of time, you know. She thinks it's deeply profound. Look at that. Look at that face, right? The significance of the passage of time. Isn't that profound, everybody? It seems really, really profound to me because I'm stoned. It seems amazingly profound, like the significance of the passage of time. Don't you guys get it? The significance of the passage of time, everybody. Like it's totally, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, right? Something's going on there. We don't know what's going on there, but it doesn't look good. What? This gets to what I talk about in this book. All right. So, spoiler alert for those who may, may be wanting to read the book. Kamala Harris's father is Donald Harris, and he was a Marxist economist at Stanford University. Uh, he was an advisor to Michael Manley, uh, who was kind of a, a progressive social democratic uh, you know, social democratic advisor or uh, um, prime minister of, of Jamaica. She, you know, her father was an advisor to Michael Manley. Um, and Donald Harris denounced her campaign. Donald Harris is estranged from his daughter. Kamala Harris's parents met at UC Berkeley in the early 1960s, and they were both left wing activists marching for civil rights. Kamala Harris's mother is a cancer researcher born in India. Kamala Harris's father is born in Jamaica, and he was studying economics at UC Berkeley. 
they met at anti-war protests. They got married and uh, they produced two children, Kamala Harris and her sister, Argentina Coup of 1976. All right. They produced Kamala Harris and her younger sister. And then there was a divorce. And the parents separated. And Kamala Harris basically lies about that divorce in her autobiography. In her autobiography called The Truths We Hold, she says the only thing that her parents fought over was the books. Bull honking. We know, thanks to her father, Donald Harris, and his essay, Reflections of a Jamaican Father, we know that Kamala Harris' parents had a custody battle. They didn't just fight over books. They fought over Kamala and her younger sister. There was a custody battle, and her mother won the custody battle, and her father lost the custody battle. And her father believes that the stereotype of Jamaicans uh, as, as not good fathers, as, as primitive, as barbaric, played a role in that. Um, the, the language he uses, uh, he basically, he believes that it was racism and anti, anti-Caribbean, anti-Jamaican bigotry uh, that played a role, that they, they presented him, even though he was a highly educated man, even though he was a high achieving academic, uh, they basically took his custody you know, away and took his, his ability to see his daughters away uh, because of racism. He resents that very much. Um, and he drops some other hints about the issues with Kamala Harris. He drops some other hints, you know, in his essay as well about what it what it might be that that caused, uh, you know, that 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 caused Kamala Harris to have resentment toward him. But he writes a lot about his his mother and grandmothers, um, his his grandmothers on both sides, and how they were strong women, uh, and how they were socialists, uh, laborites, uh, members of the of the Labor Party in Jamaica and how he wishes that Kamala Harris had been able to meet them and look up to them and see them as, as proud, strong Jamaican women. Read this essay. If you can get your hands on it. It's hard to get your hands on, but if you, if you can dig it up, uh, the, the Reflections of a Jamaican Father by Donald Harris is quite an essay, quite telling. It almost, you know, it, 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 it's really sad, I guess. It's just a really, really sad piece of writing. I mean, this is a, a father who has been estranged from his two daughters, who he deeply loves. Uh, and he feels that, you know, that they have been deprived of their Jamaican heritage. He's very proud of being Jamaican. Uh, and he very much resents, um, you know, he really, really resents uh, the fact that, uh, that, that his daughters, you know, were not a part of his life, um, that he wasn't able to raise them and, and teach them about their Jamaican heritage. Um, and on top of that, and this is all, what's also interesting. So in addition to this essay, Reflections of a Jamaican Father, we also have Donald Harris coming out uh, and saying uh, when he was, um, you know, when he was, um, when he was the, when she was running for president, uh, he came out and denounced her campaign. And the reason that he denounced her campaign was when she appeared on The Breakfast Club, the radio show, The Breakfast Club, popular radio program, African-American-themed radio program, she was asked, have you ever smoked weed? Have you ever smoked weed? And she laughed and she said, of course, 
half my family is from Jamaica. What do you think? That's that was what she said. Of course, half of my family is from Jamaica. What do you think? Now, at the time that she said that, a lot of people were infuriated by that because of the fact that Kamala Harris put thousands of people in jail for smoking marijuana. So the fact that she would nonchalantly admit she did something herself, that she destroyed the lives of people for doing, gave people criminal records for doing, put people behind bars for doing, and she did it herself. Um, that's big. But that's not what Donald Harris was particularly angry about. Her father came out angrily because he said he and his whole Jamaican family he said he speaks for his whole Jamaican family, not just himself. He said, my, my, I speak for myself and my Jamaican family when we want to separate ourselves from this travesty of identity politics. Wow. This travesty of identity politics. And he, he spoke with rage. He spoke with rage about what he called uh, the stereotype of, of Jamaicans as thrill-seeking, joy, uh, as, uh, I'll actually read you exactly what he said. I'm just going to read you what he, what he said, right? Um, this is what he said. Um, he said, this, this is what he said. This, these are pretty intense words from the father of someone running for president. My dear departed grandmothers, as well as my deceased parents, must be turning in their graves right now to see their family name, reputation, and proud Jamaican identity being connected in any way, jokingly or not, with the fraudulent stereotype of a pot-smoking joy seeker and in the pursuit of identity politics. Speaking for myself and my immediate Jamaican family, we wish to categorically disassociate ourselves from this travesty. Boom. Boom. You want to talk about a diss? Could you imagine? You're running for president. Running for president. And in response to a joke you make in an interview, your father, your biological father, who you don't speak to, comes out and basically throws you under the bus like that, says that your ancestors are turning in their graves. How dare you? Whee! You want to talk about family drama. You want to talk about, about daddy issues. You want to talk about, about you, know, you know, disagreements in the household. Woo! You ain't seen nothing yet, folks. That is really intense. That is extremely intense. That is, that is big. And keep in mind, Kamala Harris frequently talks about her mother. She has tweeted out pictures of her mother, the K-Hive. They, they admire Shamala Gapalan, Kamala Harris's mother. They, they, you know, talk about a brave immigrant woman who became a cancer researcher, put herself through school, raised two children. Endless talk about Kamala's, Kamala Harris's mother, her father, Vague references. He's an economist, economics professor at Stanford. Yeah, whatever. Moving on. Nothing to see here, folks. Nothing to see here. They're siding with Nazis in Ukraine and Russia.
Nothing to see here, folks. That's basically the way she talks about it. But then it gets better. Because Kamala Harris excessively talks about her childhood. Now, keep in mind, Kamala Harris was born in the early 1960s. She's not a young woman. She's not AOC. She's a very young, uh, very, very, she's, she's up there in years, okay? She's not a senior citizen, but she's, she ain't a spring chicken. But the fact that her own childhood comes up so frequently in her speeches is very, very odd. You know, she shouted, she called out Joe Biden, claimed that Joe Biden had a record of supporting segregationists. And she talked about how, you know, there was one child who was the first in her class to integrate her school in Berkeley and Oakland. That little girl was me. That little girl was me. She had T-shirts with 10-year-old Kamala Harris on them. T-shirts with 10-year-old Kamala Harris's face on them. When she was sworn in, when she took the oath, you know, or not when she accepted the nomination at the Democratic National Convention. When she she accepted the nomination, she talked about her childhood. She talked about being a child, being a little girl. It's weird. It's very, very weird. And I think that based on the way Kamala Harris has conducted herself, she was first a vicious prosecutor in California. The state attorney general's office in California was constantly being criticized by judges for the fact that they concealed evidence to get people locked up. There were drug labs that were running false positive results, and they wouldn't give that information. So people would people would test positive for drugs when they hadn't taken drugs, and they would not hand that information over to the defense because they wanted to lock somebody up. Uh, you know, she was just this vicious lock them up prosecutor, first in the Bay Area, and then as California State Attorney General. Uh, you look at her behavior, how she's moved her way up, and how she frequently invokes her childhood endlessly. There's another thing. There's a very famous clip of Kamala. I should have it for you here today. I've shown it elsewhere on this channel. Very famous clip of Kamala Harris, uh, where she brags about how she jailed the parents of school of children who were truant from school. That's what she did. Low-income working-class families in Oakland, uh, you know, if, if their kids were skipping school, she put the parents in jail. It's a demented policy, you know. Obviously, kids need to be in school. Obviously, you know, especially low-income children need to be in school. Some opportunity. But how does locking their parents in jail help? low-income children. How? I mean, how in the world does that help low-income children to have their parents go to jail? It doesn't help them. It doesn't help them. Doesn't help them. Does not help them. Does not help them in any conceivable way. But it punishes somebody. It gets revenge on somebody. Somebody pays for what they did. And that's why Kamala did it. And in fact, she said as much in the, the remarks that she gave about it. She blatantly said, she said, I would never be anywhere if it weren't for my education. See, it's about her all of a sudden, not about the law, 
not about justice, not about what's good for the society. No, it's about her. She would never be anywhere if it weren't for her education. So depriving a child of education is tantamount to a crime. So she decided to lock up the parents of children who were truant from school. And she laughs about it. My staff went bananas. <laughs> she laughs about this, about jailing low-income parents because their kids skip school. She thinks it's funny because she's delighting in the idea of hurting somebody. And it's about her. There's something that happened. She says she, she was deprived, you know, or, or, you know, she would never be anywhere if it weren't for her education. So she's getting revenge for something that was done in her childhood. That is abundantly clear. That is abundantly clear. And then there's, you know, there's a case where there was a man on death row uh, who was facing the death penalty. And the governor of California said, okay, if we're going to execute this guy, we need to get DNA evidence. We need to make sure he actually committed the crime. Kamala Harris's office, she was the California state attorney general at the time, said, no, no, we don't want DNA evidence. And they tried to prevent DNA evidence from being admitted. Kamala was so excited to fry a bastard. She was so pumped up that she was going to execute somebody, that she was going to get to, you know, stick the lethal injection needle in someone's arm and, you know, pump poison into them until their heart stopped. She was so pumped up about the, the thrill of taking someone's life, right? Which they rarely do in California. In Texas, they execute people very frequently, but in California, executions are quite rare. So that might have been her only chance. And just don't take her chance to kill somebody away from her. She wanted to kill somebody so bad. No, don't do DNA evidence. Don't ruin my ability to kill somebody. I have the chance to kill somebody. Let me kill somebody. Let me get some revenge. Revenge for what little Kamala suffered. Well, the governor of California overruled Kamala Harris. DNA evidence was acquired and the man was taken off of death row. Kamala Harris is essentially, not in a legal sense, but in an ethical sense, an attempted murderer. If you try to give the death penalty to someone who's innocent, and you try to prevent procedures that could prove their innocence in an ethical, not a legal sense, but an ethical sense, she is an attempted murderer. That is how evil Kamala Harris is. That is how evil she is. If, if you are in a situation where, where someone could get the death penalty and there's a possibility they're, they're innocent and you block the evidence because you just want to kill them, that's not a good person. It's not a good person. That is not a good person. And that's Kamala Harris. And some people say, well, that means Kamala Harris is a psychopath. No, 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 no. There's too much emotion there. There's too much feeling. There's too much passion. Kamala Harris is not a psychopath. Kamala Harris is a sadistic narcissist. And her sadism and her narcissism are rooted in childhood trauma. We don't know what happened. We really don't know what happened. We do not know what happened. Could have been that something happened with her father. Could have been that something happened that, you know, happened at school, happened in her neighborhood. We don't know what happened. We do not know what happened. But something happened to little Kamala Harris. And Kamala is full of rage 
about whatever happened to her. And she is determined to make the world pay. And her rage. Yeah, there you go. Her rage. Her rage cancels out the humanity of other people. Those children who are truant from school, they don't matter because she doesn't want to actually help them. She just wants to punish their parents. And this man could have gotten the death penalty if Kamala Harris had gotten her way. He doesn't matter. He's just a stand-in for getting revenge on whoever she feels harmed her. There are different theories, right? Uh, you know, there are different theories. And I talk about different theories in the book. There are some weird hints in Kamala Harris's uh, uh, autobiography. There are some weird hints about what might be the issue in, in, um, in, the, in the essay that her father published. Um, there are some... You know, there are some bizarre references to, to different things. Um, it also appears, you know, a lot of people have written about parental alienation and estrangement. So is it possible that her father mistreated her, right? That's ridiculous. I don't. But uh, is it possible that her father mistreated her? Sure, that's possible. Is it possible that her mother raised her and her sister to blame their father for all the family's hardship, right? Her mother was a single mother. They probably had financial difficulties. It's probably hard, you know, once once Donald Harris was out of the picture and once, you know, Shmala was raising the two girls, you know, on her own, it was probably very, very hard, probably very, very hard, you know, for for uh for for the family to get by. And is it possible that that scapegoating her father was something that her mother did? Is it possible that her rage is about something completely unrelated to her family and her parents? We don't know. But we do know that Kamala Harris feels like a victim. She feels like a victim. And she is obsessed, obsessed with taking revenge for this perceived victimhood. She feels like a victim of Vogue magazine because they photographed her in sneakers after she came to the goddamn photo shoot wearing sneakers. She feels like a victim of Joe Biden's staff because she thinks they're racist. She feels like a victim because people don't stand and, and applaud, you know, or don't stand up when she walks into the room, even though she's not actually the president, she's the vice president. Kamala Harris has cultivated her own feelings of victimhood, which are probably based on very real things that happen. There are probably some things that did happen in her childhood in which she was definitely a victim. But based on that, she has cultivated this feeling of victimhood, that she's a victim and her life is about proving, you know, it's about getting revenge for her perceived victimhood. It's about showing the world that she's powerful. That little girl was me and they're going to pay for what happened to little Kamala. And she has gotten herself into a mindset where other people are just objects. Other people are just, are just these things that Kamala Harris has to crawl over in her path for glory and, and, and prestige and honor and revenge and redemption and justice for what happened to her. It is a very, very dangerous place to get to psychologically. 
but that's why she's in the position she's in. Right? She's not, they didn't pick her to be vice president because she's smart. They didn't pick her to be vice president because she's, you know, she's talented. They picked her because they can control her. The warmongers, the regime change lobbyists, the ruling class, the FBI, the intelligence agencies, they picked her because they know how to push her buttons. And you can bet, now that we see that clip of her talking about the passage of time, their ability to manipulate her, to push her buttons, to control her, whether it's with microdosing, whether it's with you know reliving trauma and some of the weird stuff that Scientology does, this kind of trauma reenactment, you know, re-traumatization therapy that, that goes on, you know, various tactics of that have been developed over the years, whether it's with hypnosis, whether it's with microdosing drugs, you can bet that the people who put Kamala Harris where she is because they know how to push her buttons are working harder on her than ever before. And that's why she, she looks completely, completely out of touch with reality in that clip, right? Kamala Harris was a last-minute decision that they really wanted, a lot of people really wanted Hillary Clinton to run for president again. This is documented. I cite sources in the book. You know, I mean, page after page, I cite sources. And it was the Hillary Clinton faction, the people that were backing and wanting Hillary Clinton to run for president again. They had a meeting in the Hamptons in Long Island, and they made a decision, nope, Hillary Clinton can't run again, we're going with Kamala. And it was that Hillary Clinton State Department faction, Samantha Power, Anne-Marie Slaughter, Cass Sunstein, a whole crew of very evil people, Ben Rhodes. There's a whole crew of regime change, regime change lobbyists the people who handled Barack Obama, the people who pushed Barack Obama, the people who worked with Hillary Clinton to work behind Barack Obama's back. Those people have got Kamala where she is because they know how to control her. They know how to control Kamala Harris. They know how to get what they want out of her. And the fact that Tulsi Gabbard used her very, very limited time on the debate stage to expose Kamala Harris is also very telling because Tulsi Gabbard is an opponent of the regime change lobby. That's what she's dedicated herself to opposing regime change wars. And Tulsi Gabbard, who's someone well-connected with the military, well-connected with the Modi government in India, Tulsi Gabbard had very little time. She was treated as a fringe candidate in the elections, but she used she used her limited time on the debate stage. They asked her a question and she just used it. She said, yeah, that's great. And then she moved on to attack Kamala Harris. And that's because Tulsi Gabbard represents the folks that are opposing regime change wars. And Tulsi Gabbard knows that Kamala Harris represents the folks that are supporting regime change wars. And that she is basically more or less the Manchurian candidate of the regime change lobby. They have her completely under their thumb. They can play her like a flute. Look how, look how narcissistic Kamala Harris is. She threw a tantrum over her shoes, over tennis shoes in Vogue magazine. 
She wants them to stand up for her. She wants them to stand up for her when she's not the president yet. And she takes offense to that. Somebody that is that narcissistic and that easily wounded in their ego and that obsessed with their own image and that vindictive and sadistic and has that much of a desire to kill people. Somebody like that is is a very, very weak person and very, very easy to manipulate. Very, very easy to manipulate. Very, very easy to manipulate. And that's that. That's why she's there. This is a an unhinged, unhinged person. She has a, a kindergarten understanding of politics. Her understanding of the Ukraine crisis is Russia is like a big country and Ukraine is like a small country. And so like Russia's attacking this small country. I mean, she's she has no idea what's going on. And the people around her know how to play her like a flute. They can play her like a fiddle. And and she's not in her right mind. And they know exactly how to push her buttons. And I really hope that she never becomes president. As much as I don't like Joe Biden, my hope is that Joe Biden, Joe Biden will stay president until the end of his term, because President Harris is everything we've seen with Joe Biden, but worse, but far, far worse, far worse. On that note, I only have one other comment to make in my opening remarks, and then we'll start answering super chat questions. We'll do the roll call and then start answering super chat questions. But biolabs. Biolabs. It is a fact that the Pentagon created biological labs in Ukraine. No, it is not a conspiracy theory. No, it is not something that might be true. No, it's not just something Russia said. It is a fact. Now, they claim these labs are only serving research purposes. Oh, they're only for research purposes. Well, we all know that the Pentagon goes around doing all kinds of research that has nothing to do with military stuff, right? The Pentagon's not like a military thing anymore. These labs were built by the Pentagon. There are over 30 of them in Ukraine. and. The USA admits that they're there. It just says they have no military purpose. And if you don't believe me, that's fine. I'm not asking you to believe me. I I mean, the specter is probably saying, oh, Caleb, that's crazy conspiracy theory. Oh, it hasn't Caleb sat next to somebody who somebody, somebody, somebody. (sighs) If you don't want to believe me, believe the U.S. Undersecretary of State. Now, these biolabs don't exist, which is what I tweeted today about the biolabs, and a bunch of people tweeted at me, that's not true, that's made up, that's just Russian propaganda. Well, if it's just Russian propaganda, tell me why Under Secretary of State Victoria Newland said this. Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? Uh, Ukraine has uh, 
biological research facilities, which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. I'm sure. Now, watch that, that clip. Marco Rubio asks her, does Ukraine have biological weapons? And she doesn't go, oh, no. She goes, um, um they've got research facilities. And um, we're really worried about those research facilities falling into the hands of the Russians. So first of all, she doesn't say they don't have weapons. Number one. Number two, she answers a question about weapons by saying, well, they have these facilities. I, I, you know. And then third, she says they're really worried about these facilities going into the hands of the Russians. Now tell me, if these labs have no military purpose, which is now the current U.S. talking point, Right. Half of Twitter just says, oh, there's no such lab. She just made that up. It's a big lie. You're retarded. Oh, it's Russian propaganda. And it's like, no, it's not. They clearly are there. But among the people who aren't just lying and denying it, which is that's how most people they just appeal to bias. They say, oh, that's just Russian propaganda. Don't believe it. Well, it's true, actually. But among the people that that don't just lie, don't just bluff and deny it. Among the people that actually, okay, admit that, yes, those labs are there, their talking points, they say, well, they don't serve a military purpose. Well, then tell me why, why did the Pentagon build them? Why did Victoria Newland respond to a question about biological weapons in Ukraine that way? She could have just said no. She didn't say no. She said, facilities. That sounds a lot like she didn't want to full-on admit they had biological weapons, but she could confirm they did have facilities. And then on top of that, why are they worried about them getting into the hands of the Russians? If these are just happy, happy, fun labs, these are just happy, happy, fun research facilities that have nothing to do with, with military, then why are they so worried about the Russians getting their hands on them? Right? If, it's, if these are just fun, normal labs, this is where you know people get their COVID tests done, and this is you know, where they, I mean, they're trying to find a cure for cancer. Then why are they so worried about the Russians getting their hands on them? Looks to me like these are military bio labs. And it looks to me like when asked if Ukraine has biological weapons, She didn't say no. Now, there's a weird connection with Hunter Biden, the biolabs. That's true. I reported on that earlier today. Uh, the firm that Hunter Biden's tied in is, is related to the company that was supplying these labs with, with supplies. Yet another example of corruption. Uh, you know, but yes, Hunter Biden's firm, you know, has a financial relationships with the lab, as does the uh, Open Society Institute of George Soros. But these are Pentagon sponsored research facilities. And the fact that when I bring them up on social media, a barrage of bots pour onto my page and say, that's not true, that's made up. 
and then I have that clip. And then, and then after they lie first and say they don't exist, then they go to, oh, well, okay, yeah, they do exist, but they're just happy, happy, fun research facilities and nothing to do with, you know, military purposes. When they're paid for by the Pentagon, number one, when she talked about them, Victoria Newland talked about them in response to a question about biological weapons, and she didn't say, no, they don't have them. And third, they're really afraid of Russia getting their hands on them. It sounds to me like we have pretty much solid proof at this point that the United States was working with the Ukrainian government to develop biological weapons. I mean, that's what it looks like to me. I mean, I, you can look at that clip and decide for yourself. I mean, it doesn't literally say that, but it looks to me like there was at least an attempt by the United States to work with the Ukrainian government to develop biological weapons to attack Russia. So tell me, how can anyone in the world think that Russia is not right to bring an end to that. I'm sorry. Do you think that if Russia was setting up in Mexico and they set up 30 different labs that were developing bioweapons to attack the United States with, you think that we wouldn't go into Mexico and take those labs apart? I'm so sick of all of this moralizing. All these people are so concerned about the Ukrainians. First of all, what about the 14,000 people who've been dying in Ukraine since 2014? Do their lives just not matter because they're Russian? Their lives just don't matter because they're in Donetsk and Lugansk, because they're communists, because they're in a people's republic? Their lives just don't matter. But on top of that, now we know that not only was this government in Kiev threatening and talking about getting nuclear weapons, threatening to join the NATO alliance and bring NATO alliance right down to their border, not only were they tearing down World War II memorials, not only were they having open torch-lit Nazi marches and form, you know, bringing Nazis to be an official part of their military, but now the icing on the cake, that there were 30 different facilities set up by the Pentagon to do bio-research. And it looks a lot like they were developing biological weapons. Now, if, if, if there is not a clear case for Russia, intervening. I, I What is? I mean, what is Russia supposed to do? How long are they supposed to wait? All right. So they've been killing people in Donetsk and Lugansk for eight years. Eight years they've been killing these people. So they waited for 10, right? They should have waited until it was, you know, it's 14,000, 16,000. They waited until it was 50,000. Then they should have protected these people. I don't know. There's 30 biological weapons facilities in Ukraine. Should they have waited until there were 60? Should they have waited until there was 100? Like, what, when is Russia allowed to be a real country and do what a goddamn real country would do? I'm so tired. I am so tired of this projection. Any country would do what Russia is doing right now. Any country would do this. I'm sorry. If, if your enemy overthrows a government right on your border, starts bombing and massacring people who speak your language, and foments a civil war against Rus Russian-speaking people and then people on your border who speak your language, if they start getting biological weapons facilities together, if they announce that they're going to get nukes, if they, I mean, if they, they form a Nazi battalion that, that's, you know, taking oaths to kill your people, like what Russia is doing right now makes absolutely perfect sense. War is hell. And I denounce any atrocities that go on, though they're lying about atrocities. You know, they just make up atrocities. We, a lot of the claims we're seeing on TV about Russian atrocities aren't even true. 
But if there are actual Russian atrocities going on, I, of course, denounce that. I don't support war crimes. I don't want anyone to become a refugee. I don't want any civilian to die in war. I don't want. But it's like what Russia is doing is completely, completely logical. It makes absolute sense. It's what any country would do. And all this moralizing and all of this emotional blah, 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 and glossing over the fact. It drives me crazy. I am so tired of this. And people who know better, people who should know better, people who should know better are buying into this garbage. They don't know anything about it. They don't know anything about this. They don't know anything about it. But they just know that they feel really sorry for Ukrainians. I feel sorry for Ukrainians too. And I feel sorry for the people of Donetsk and Lugansk. I feel sorry for them too. Right? Right? Man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I feel sorry for Ukrainians and what they're going through, but this is what any country would do under these circumstances. It makes perfect sense. It is completely logical. You have to draw a line in the sand somewhere. They waited. They signed the Minsk Accords in 2015. They were supposed to stop bombing the people in Donetsk and bring them back into, back into Russian society. They didn't do it. They've been killing them, shelling them, bombing them, 14,000 dead. That's a little bit of a big deal. <laughs> the threats, now biological weapons. And people still, they moralize this. Oh, no, how dare Russia do this? Oh, my God, can you believe this? Oh, my God, ban every Russian movie from Netflix. Oh, ban this chess player who won't denounce Putin. Oh my God, pour out Russian vodka. It's so annoying. And the thing is, no one knows anything about this. But if you start to tell them about it, they get scared. They don't want to know about it because they know how intense the propaganda is, how emotional the propaganda is, and they don't want to know. They're afraid to know the truth. They're afraid to know the truth because the truth the truth would put them at odds with society. So this is a moment when we have to be heroic. We have to be bold. We have to be strong. We have to not give an inch on this. We have to say Russia is right. The Ukrainian NATO regime is wrong. We have to be bold. We have to be heroic. We have to refuse to back down. That's what we have to do. Because they are really trying to intimidate people. They are really trying to scare people out of saying what we're saying. And we have to be bold. We have to be strong. We have to say, look, sorry, facts are facts. No, this is not Russia randomly acting. This is Russia acting in response to years and years and years of provocations. They basically prevented a massacre that was going to take place. Uh, the, the Kiev government was you know, revved up. It was going to massacre the people of Donbass. They protected them. They stopped it. At this point, we just got to, we got to hold the line. We got to be tough. We got to not give an inch and not back down. Don't be Kamala Harris. Don't be out to lunch and easily emotionally manipulated. Don't let them pluck your heartstrings and turn your brain off. Stand firm, stand strong, refuse to back down, be a city builder, be strong. And those are my opening remarks for tonight. Thanks, everybody, for listening to my opening remarks. So now let's do the roll call.
I'm going to be looking at you as you write your names in, names and locations. So I won't be looking at the camera for a minute while I figure out your, your names and locations. So names and locations, folks, I'll call you out as I see you on the screen over here. Names and locations. Who's with us tonight? Names and locations. Names and locations. Hugo from the Netherlands is with us. Cleveland Pirate Alex. Keaton's here. Hey, guys. Hey to you, Keaton. Um, Sorrentos in Seattle, Xander from Colorado, Temple City, California, St. David's, Bermuda, Billy Kane in Gateshead, England, Melbourne, uh, True Nadia, Bendigo, Australia, David Fox, JT24, Neil Frazier in Hong Kong, Mend Mendocino, Mo in Toronto, Ben from Edinburgh, Switzerland, Zurich, Nick in California, Ethan from Washington, Quinn in Maryland, uh, Quinn in Meredith. Nathaniel in Seattle, Gabby in Chicago, Dorian in Northeast LA, Carolyn in Staten Island, uh, Aloha from Hawaii, Stargazer, Clinton, Germany, Pittsburgh, NYC Tanks, Marissa in Olympia, Washington, Rice from Adelaide, Australia, Steve from Burien, Washington, New Orleans, Sao Paulo, Brazil, Jose, Kieran from San Diego, Northern Michigan, A Better America. Uh, oh, and thank you for the super chat. Always appreciated. Broth Quaker Bush, always appreciated. Winoha, Minnesota. Brian in London. Super Patriot Caribbean. Uh, Micah in Las Vegas. Nick from Tampa, Florida. Steve Gallagher in Chicago. Treasure Coast, Florida. Auckland, New Zealand. Mosin from Iran. Far, Texas. Seattle, Washington. Los Angeles. Lemma. Very, very good. Lemma. Esther from Chicago. Uh, Carlos, Brazil, Colorado, Terry from UP, Michigan, Tom River, New Jersey, Bruno, Munich, Valerius, Poland, Daniel in Seattle, Puerto Rico, Tom's River, New Jersey, Jason in Georgia, Klaus in Germany, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Janer in Puerto Rico, Spain in Madrid, Tennessee, Daniel from the Red Star State, Canada, Canada. Very good. Very good, folks. Spain, Madrid. Always so good to talk to everybody. Always so good to talk to everybody. We got a number of super chats to answer. Carmen in Redding, Pennsylvania. Adam in Vegas, baby. South Carolina in the house. Ian Nix, Petro Rubel, Syracuse, Mark, Bob, Troy. Wow, you all are great. This is a great community we have on here. I love doing these streams. This is the highlight of my day. Today I did some work. I did, you know, my, some reporting for RT. I worked on some articles I've been writing. I went to the gym and exercised. I the way I do it at the gym, now I can just look at the camera because I'm I'm talking to all of you now. The way I do it at the gym, right, is I do it every other day. So one day I go and I do cardio. The next day I go and I do weights and a little bit of cardio. And then I go back to just, just a day of cardio and then I do weights. Today was weights day. So weights day. And I went in there and I lifted some weights and, you know, my, my arms ached and I lifted those weights and my chest ached a little bit. Then I went and ate some food. And this is the highlight of my day. This is really the highlight of my day, talking to all of you guys. I mean, it's really a lot of fun. It really, really is a lot of fun. And uh, I love doing it. So if you got a question, you got a super chat, shoot it my way. Um, and I'm just going to start answering your super chat questions at this point. And there were three that came before the show even started. Thanks for waiting around, folks. I know we had a delayed start. Thank you. So the first question is, Biden begging Iran and Venezuela for oil, does that create leverage for the release of Alex Saab? Oh, absolutely. It does create leverage. Alex Saab, for those of you who may not have heard of his case, he's a political prisoner 
He's a Venezuelan diplomat. Uh, he was uh, he's, he's Colombian born, but he is a Venezuelan citizen and a Venezuelan diplomat. And he was on his way to Iran to arrange for food and medicine from Iran to be sent to Venezuela. His plane stopped to refuel in Cabo Verde or Cape Verde. He was then dragged off the plane, uh, dragged off the plane uh, and uh, held in Cabo Verde uh, and then extradited to the United States. And he's facing charges of money laundering uh, in Miami. Uh, his, his trial date is set for October. Um, thoughts on Nepal ratifying MCC compact. Um, okay. All right. And, um, oh. Have you heard of Compact Magazine? I haven't heard of it. I haven't heard of it. Um, so there you go. What's I, I come on, man. All right. But if anyone has any other questions, uh, there we go. So it does, you know, Alex Saab is facing trial. His trial date is set for, uh, for October. Um, and the implications of the case are big. Uh, basically they're trying to create a situation where basically they can kidnap anybody who does business with Venezuela or Iran, or any of the countries uh, that uh, that the United States says it doesn't like. And it's a case of intimidation. It's a case of, um, you know, the USA claiming their laws apply to the whole world. He should have had diplomatic immunity. He should have, you know, the US, the US law has no jurisdiction in Venezuela, in Cabo Verde, or in Iran. Uh, they, the USA has no right to arrest Alex Saab the way they did. I mean, this is just an illegal action from the United States. But it's going ahead. And I mean, they want to send him to jail for a long time and they should release Alex Saab immediately and drop the charges. Uh, you know, Lily Goldplang gave a very, very great speech um, about the case at our conference. It's being edited right now. It should be posted soon on the website, on the YouTube channel. Um, and we got a free Alex Saab. And there was a great day of action. People protested in Washington, D.C., and in Boston, and in Texas, uh, and and in San Francisco, and in Los Angeles, and all across the country, Center for Political Innovation activists protested for Alex Saab. It was the right thing to do, um, and uh, you know we did it here in New York as well. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that uh, that that the USA will make some kind of deal with Venezuela and release Alex Saab. Now that said. Venezuela has to give something to the United States. I mean, the way these things kind of work is there's kind of tit for tat. They should just release Alex Saab immediately. There should be no deal. He has, they have no right to arrest him. However, uh, you know, the way negotiations tend to work is the USA will say, okay, if you'll give us this, we'll give you Alex back. So what would Venezuela give to the United States? I mean, the United States basically went to Venezuela begging for oil because they're trying to cut off Russian oil. Right. Russia is a top oil exporting country and they're trying to cut off Russia. So they said, OK, can we can we have Venezuela send some oil to the United States and that way less Russian oil can come in. And, um, you know, and that way we can get the natural the, the price of oil to go down. And, and so they're trying. There's some negotiations going on. Uh, so we shall see. Um, but at the same time, I mean, and thank you, David. Thank you for the super chat. David is a great labor union activist out out in Australia, a leader of Australians for a new democracy. And um, thank you, David, very much for that super chat. And, you know, let, let's hope that um, that somehow Alex Saab can be released. But let's hope that Venezuela doesn't give too much ground to the United States. I mean, what on, on what what does Venezuela owe the USA? Nothing. I mean, the crippling sanctions that have been imposed on Venezuela, 
blocking their ability to import food, you know, stealing their money. I mean, their money has been frozen in British and American banks. They have done, they've gone all out, coup attempts, everything to try and, um, to try and crush, crush, um, crush uh, the Venezuelan revolution. So, I mean, they, I mean, you know, I mean, Venezuela, you know, they should have walked into the meeting and, and laughed at the United States. Like, you want us to help you? But there you go. I can comment on that. All right. Very good. Uh, all right. Yes, a booting out. Working group. All right. So there you go. Uh, future of Ukrainian statehood. There should be a Ukrainian state. Okay. And Russia wants there to be a Ukrainian state. Russia doesn't want to absorb Ukraine into Russia. Now, I think there are some people in Donetsk and Lugansk that want, you know, the, the Donetsk Republic and the Lugansk Republic to be part of Russia, but, but there should be a Ukrainian state, right? And, and I, Russia doesn't want to conquer Ukraine. It doesn't want to make Ukraine part of Russia. That's not what they want. They want neutrality. They want Ukraine to not be threatening them, to not be, you know, threatening to join NATO. Um, they want Ukraine to stop murdering the people of the Eastern regions. They want there to not be a Nazi, anti-Russian fanatical division in the Ukrainian military. But no, I mean, there should be a Ukrainian state. The Ukrainian people have a right to their statehood. And, and the idea that Russia is trying to like absorb Ukraine or something, it's not accurate. Not accurate. All right. What is the etymology or history behind the idea of East versus West? Where did it historically start? Does it start from the Byzantine? Oh, that's a very interesting question. We can talk about that. East versus West. Yeah, there should be a Ukrainian state. And Russia recognizes that there should be a Ukrainian state. You know, and the idea, you know, the idea that 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 this is about Ukraine's sovereignty as a country is absolutely ridiculous. Russia does not threaten Ukraine's sovereignty. They're not threatening Ukraine's sovereignty. They're protecting the sovereignty of the people of Donetsk and Lugansk. But keep in mind, the people of Donetsk and Lugansk asked for Russia's recognition as an independent country in 2014, and Russia said no. And Russia facilitated the Minsk Accords and facilitated a deal wherein Donetsk and Lugansk would be absorbed back into Ukraine. They wanted Donetsk and Lugansk to be part of Ukraine. Ukraine didn't want that. Ukraine continued to refer to the Donetsk People's Republic and Lugansk People's Republic as terrorists. It continued bombing them. It would not implement the Minsk agreements. And Russia worked really hard to try and keep Donetsk and Lugansk in Ukraine. And it became very, very clear that Ukraine was not going to follow the treaty that they signed uh, to let them be part of Ukraine. And so because Ukraine you know, will not take these people and is murdering them, uh, Russia has moved in. Uh, but yeah, but you know, the, this is not, the issue is not Ukrainian statehood, right? You know, Ukraine has a right to be a country just like any other, right? Um, are the odds of a no-fly zone over Ukraine being created high? All right. Odds of a no-fly zone created over Ukraine. All right. All right. Writing it down. Good questions. All right. Did I see that? I did see that, and I thanked him for it on Twitter. Primo Radical is a great YouTube channel, by the way. He has really great guests, um, you know, uh, I've been one of those guests, but yeah, he showed the rally by CPI John Brown volunteers in, in New York City that happened last Sunday. And yeah, I saw that and I tweeted it out. It was tremendous. Um, yes, I did. And check out Primo Radical's channel. It's a great channel. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. 
Russia-China trade pact. Well, look, the United States has been putting sanctions on Russia and trying to intimidate countries around the world for not, you know, to not do business with Russia. And so as a result of that, uh, Russia does more business with China. China has been intimidated by the United States, tariffs, threats. The United States is going around intimidating countries to not do business deals with, with China. So China does more business with Russia. They're putting pressure on both of those countries. And as a result, those countries are becoming closer and closer together. And their relationship is not based on politics. It's based on necessity. China needs to import lots of oil and gas. Um, Russia needs to sell lots of oil and gas. Uh, the two, And they need to import a lot of industrial products, electronics, et cetera. There's an economic relationship. They fit together like puzzle pieces economically. I mean, Russia and China are made for each other at this point. They're both countries that pulled themselves up in the 20th century. They were dirt poor at the beginning of the 20th century. And with socialism, with socialism that made Russia a modern industrial country, with Stalin's five-year economic plans, with socialism that made China what it is today, the Communist Party, socialism with Chinese characteristics, Deng Xiaoping's reform and opening up, central planning, allowing market mechanisms, five-year plans. Socialism made Russia and China both what they are today. Uh, without the communists, there would be no more modern Russia, there'd be no modern China. Um, and if you want any proof that socialism works as an economic system, say Russia and say China. I mean, it was socialists, socialist system that invented space travel, that you know industrialized and eradicated literacy and, and electrified all of Russia. It was socialism that made China the second largest economy in the world. And the two countries have had their disagreements over the years, and they're very different. And China still has a Marxist-Leninist party in power. Uh, they've adjusted and adopted socialism for their conditions, and they, you know, they, they've kind of mixed socialism and Marxism and Mao Zedong thought with Confucianism, etc. Um, in 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 Russia, they don't believe in Marxism anymore. Uh, they had a you know counter-revolution in the '90s. They had Boris Yeltsin free market reforms. And then Putin came in as kind of a Bonapartist figure and put oil and gas under state control and stabilized the economy. Um, gentrification. All right. All right. And stabilized. And stabilized. Very good question. Stabilized the economy and, and asserted government control over the economy in Russia. And um, both of those countries are now strong countries and modern industrial countries because of socialism. And uh, there you go. Meanwhile, the West, uh, we started really believing in capitalism. We started believing in neoliberalism, privatize everything, the government's role in the economy being completely cut out. We started believing in that. And now the West is falling apart. So if you want to know what system is best, uh, I think the proof is in the pudding, as they say. Uh, so there you go. All right. Next question. Ukraine conflict impacting how Soviet history is taught in U.S. schools. I mean, we're just going to see more of the same. I mean, look, the way I in college, I took European history and the entire teaching about the history of the Soviet Union was just a slide of starving people. You know, it's like, oh, Stalin, you know, yeah, the Soviet Union, they had the Russian Revolution. And then click, look at this slide of a bunch of starving people. You know, and the funny thing is that that slide they showed us, there's a very good chance it wasn't from the 1930s in Ukraine. It wasn't from the Holodomor. It was actually from the 1920s. There's a very good chance that I don't know. But many times they've caught, you know, the history textbooks and stuff. They use pictures from the 20s, pictures that Russia and the Soviet Union provided to the world showing why they needed the blockade to be lifted, 
they use those pictures and say that they're pictures from the 1930s of Holodomor. There are very few pictures of, of the famine that went on in Ukraine in the 1930s. Uh, there just weren't reporters there documenting it. I mean, it was, you know, it was you know, not a time where that was going on. Um, but there are a lot of pictures of very hungry people in Russia in the 1920s because Russia was sending those pictures around the world saying, end the blockade, let us get medicine and food. You know, right after the Russian Civil War, they were trying to get the blockade broken. So, but, you know, but regardless, that was the entire history of the Soviet Union I was shown. That's what this professor thought the entire history of the Soviet Union was. Click. And this is all the starving people. Because communism always starves people, blah, blah, blah. That's what I was taught, right? And I mean, we're just going to get more of this. And it's going to be solidified. And it's going to be, you know, reinforced. Um, you know, I mean, but it's, that's how they've taught history, right? I mean, the whole of the Soviet Union raising itself up from poverty and inventing space travel and wiping out illiteracy and, you know, becoming a modern industrial country and full electrification, that doesn't matter. That, didn't, that doesn't matter. What matters is there was this famine for two years in Ukraine. And that proves that socialism never works anywhere. And anyone who believes in socialism is an idiot. That's what these people think. And they're just wrong. Um, and we're going to hear more of that. We're going to hear a lot more of that. Right. And they're going to use the Ukraine narrative to, to justify that. Great interview that my good friend Ramiro Funes did with Dr. Grover Fur. He has a great YouTube channel. Uh, and he just did a great interview with, uh, with Grover Fur about, you know, the, you know yeah, obviously there was a famine in Ukraine in the early 30s. But the idea that this was done because Stalin hated Ukrainians and it was intended as a genocide to wipe out Ukrainians is absolutely ridiculous. That didn't happen. That was, that's not what happened. There was a problem with the collectivization of agriculture. Ukraine is the breadbasket of, of Russia, the Soviet Union. It's a lot of farmland there. And, you know, there was a f- crop failures and shortages. Um, you know, um, Russian Communist Party took power back. Uh, you know, crop failures and shortages. And, uh, and as a result of that, um, as a result of that, there was a lot of starvation in Russia in, in the aftermath of the collectivization. In 31, 32, and 33, those years were, very, were years of extreme food shortages. That happened. Um, but it also happened in Russia. And it also happened in Moldova. It was concentrated in Ukraine. It was in Ukraine that it happened the most because those were the most agricultural regions. And, but you know, it happened throughout throughout the Soviet Union. And the idea that it was an intentional genocide to wipe out Ukrainians, I mean, sorry, that's that's just ridiculous. And, you know, Mark Talger from West Virginia and a lot of historians, even like mainstream anti-communist historians, will say the narrative, okay, that there was a famine. It's possible that mismanagement contributed to the famine. It's possible there was heavy government repression during that famine. Obviously, there was when you have shortages of food and, you know, you're regulating who gets food and who doesn't. You're going to have to have heavy-handed government repression. You know, I mean, it's possible, you know, certainly there were atrocities that went on, but the idea that Stalin was sitting there and he said, I hate Ukraine, let's starve all the Ukrainians to death. I mean, that, that didn't happen. Okay. There was a famine and a lot of people died and, and it was awful. And it's possible that there was extreme mismanagement. They did kind of zigzag. They went from private farming to collectivization very rapidly. Um, you know, and there were situations where they had to export grain in order to get the, you know, the farm equipment to, to, to farm better. And, you know, can you imagine that? I mean, in order to buy tractors, I mean, you can't imagine what the Bolsheviks were up against, right? To buy tractors and, and uh, to buy the supplies so you could start producing tractors. You need to 
sell grain at a time when there's a food shortage in your country? I mean, I can't imagine that. Can you imagine sitting there and saying, okay, well, we have a famine right now, but if we take some of the limited food we've got, we can get supplies to buy tractors so that we don't have a famine next year. And I mean, that's what the Bolsheviks, that's the position the Bolsheviks were in. And I mean, that is a really awful situation. So, I mean, you know, I mean, again, we can say hindsight is always 2020, as they say, right? We can always say, oh, well, we would have managed it better and maybe we would have, right? And maybe the Bolsheviks made the wrong decision. Maybe they shouldn't have spent, you know, you know, sold grain in order to get equipment so they could buy tractors and make sure nothing like that famine ever happened. But, you know, maybe they did the wrong thing. I don't know. But, you know, people want to blame the Soviet Union's, you know, agricultural system for the famine. It was the Soviet Union that ended those famines. There were famines every year, all the time before the Bolsheviks came to power. There were famines under the czar year after year after year after year. Malnutrition went on all the time before communism. And no one ever says, oh, that shows that you need communism. But yes, there was a famine in the 1930s. There was Holodomor. There were millions of people who starved to death in Ukraine and other parts of, of the Soviet Union because of crop failures. But after that, the Soviet Union mechanized agriculture and brought in tractors and brought in electrification and built a modern goddamn farm system. So it was the Soviet Union that cured starvation, not the Soviet Union that created it. But that's not the narrative we get. That doesn't fit. And the same with China. You know, uh, you know, the Great Leap Forward was a famine that took place in China in the early 1960s. Awful famine. A lot of people died. Um, but before the revolution in China, there were famines all the time and millions of people died. And there were famines in the 1920s. There were famines in the 19 teens. There were famines in the 1930s. There were famines all over, but no one cares about those famines because they don't play a political role in demonizing the communist party. And it's the communist party of China that cured China of having all those awful famines. No one ever gives them any credit for that. Right. The fact that they cured famines. Well, that's not important. What matters is that in the process of curing famines, they still had a famine. So that proves communism never works. It's so ridiculous. Um, I don't know about that. I, I've, I've never heard of that. I don't know about that. I will talk about Jehovah's Witnesses in Russia. Right. We can talk about that. This is Russia. I, I can talk about that. I'll touch on that briefly. But there you go. But yeah, we're just going to hear more of this, you know. Communism causes people to starve, even though communism turned Russia and China into superpowers. We're going to hear more of that, Chaya. I mean, it's just, this is going to reinforce the anti-communist narrative. The Argentine coup of 1976. Okay. Now, if I remember correctly, right, I'm trying to get a timeline of the Southern Cone, right? They call Chile and Argentina the Southern Cone of Latin America, right? Because that's, you know, at the bottom of, you know, I shouldn't say the bottom, but the South of, of you know, South America, you know, the very South, you have Chile and you have Argentina. And in 1973, you had the coup in Chile that brought Pinochet to power. And then it was in the early 80s, there was a coup to remove Isabel Perón. Right? I believe Isabel Perón was like a relative of Juan Perón, who was like the president. She was removed in 1982 by the military, if I'm not mistaken. So the 1976 coup in Argentina, what was that? I don't know my, my Peronist Argentine history enough to tell you about what that coup was. You know, you should ask, go ask Dakota Lilly. Dakota Lilly is the expert on all things related to Argentina and Peronism. Uh, he's brilliant. Um, I've interviewed him about Peronism and, and Argentine history on this channel many times. He's a brilliant young man. So if you really want to know your chronology of Peronismo, 
uh, you would have to go check out Dakota Lilly's work. He's been on the Tucker Carlson show to talk about Venezuela. Did a great job. He's a great, great young man. And uh, I mean, he's very much a student of Peronismo. Uh, and the Kirshners, he's an expert on the Kirshners. He, he's actually hung out with the vice president of Venezuela many times. Like he's totally friendly with, um, with the vice president of Venezuela. She's, you know, she's kind of his gal pal or whatever. It's, it's kind of hilarious. So there you go. There you go. All right. Libs siding with Nazis in Ukraine and Russia. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so ridiculous. These people, everyone's a Nazi, right? They call me a Nazi for incoherent reasons that make no sense. They claim that Alexander Dugan in Russia is a Nazi when he's not. He's a conservative. He's a traditionalist. He's an anti-imperialist, but he's not a Nazi. Uh, you know, they they claim that all Trump supporters are Nazis. They claim that, uh, you know, anyone, anyone who has questions about the trans issue is a Nazi. They claim that anybody who who anyone, anybody who doesn't agree with the woke synthetic left on any issue is a Nazi. Meanwhile, actual Nazis in Ukraine get a pass. That should completely discredit these people. These people are just woke zombies of the establishment. That's all they are. They are, they are just, they are, they are puppets, puppets of the establishment. That's all they are. That is all they are. All right. Uh, India getting closer to Russia and China. Well, yeah, I mean, at this point, because, you know, India is buying weapons from Russia and India has, you know, I mean, they, they, at first it seemed like they were getting closer to both Russia and China. And then under Trump, India kind of doubled down and they were with Trump against China. They were still friendly to Russia. But now um, it appears that as a result of this Ukraine crisis, they're getting closer to both Russia and China. And there were some border disputes with India. There were some tensions there during the Trump years. But now, look, the United States wants the whole world to lock, walk in lockstep with them. And India is saying no. I mean, Russia does a lot of business here. Russia is a, you know, is, is a legit country. And, you know, they might have some legit security concerns. India has relations with the Syrian government. And, you know, India has their own problem with Wahhabis. The Saudi government builds these schools in India uh, called Diobandi schools, where they train Indian Muslims to be terrorists, to be Wahhabis. Um, And India has been fighting against the Diobandis, right, which are these like Indian Wahhabi, you know, Muslim terrorists. And so they saw that Saudi Arabia was sending Wahhabi terrorists to Syria. And they said, okay, we don't support that. India has actually been somewhat supportive of the Syrian government, which is an ally of Russia. And, you know, I mean, there's very good economic business relationships between India and Russia. And, you know, India is not a socialist country by any means. It's a very capitalist free market, you know, country, but you'll notice that, that it's kind of becoming more and more of a bourgeois nationalist regime. You know, Modi has, you know, regulated banking in ways the imperialists don't like, et cetera. Um, uh, France testing nukes in Polynesia under Jacques Chirac. I don't know much about that. I don't know much about it. All right. Um, Nepal. Well, look, Nepal is an interesting country because for many years, there was like a Maoist communist insurgency in Nepal. Uh, it was led by the Communist Party of Nepal Maoist, and they were like a, a Maoist communist insurgency that was taking control of the countryside. And Nepal was a monarchy. And then you had the, the monarchy became like an absolute monarchy. And then, you know, in the cities in Nepal, uh, as the Maoist communist insurgency was was gaining ground, you had an uprising in Nepal, um, you know, by the seven party alliance. And it was seven political parties, a number of which were communist parties. You have the Communist Party of Nepal, United Marxist Leninist, 
you have the commun uh, the worker and peasants party of Nepal, you have the socialist uh, party of Nepal, and and you know you know there was a number of parties in Nepal that are Marxist parties in the cities and the Maoists in the countryside and the, the Marxist Leninist Communist Party and others they toppled the king. Uh, and this happened, I believe it was 2006, 2007, uh, the king uh, was toppled and uh, the Communist Party of Nepal Maoist was part of the government. Um, and now the communists in Nepal have merged into one communist party and they are a big pole in the country and they are the more pro-China wing. Whereas the party in Nepal that is more pro-US is called the Congress Party and it's aligned with India. And so Nepal kind of gets caught between India, India and China. Uh, the, the Communist Party of Nepal started out, you know, the Maoists in Nepal were these ultra Maoists that didn't like China. Now they're in power. They like China, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, Prashanda uh, and um, a number of the leaders of the Communist Party of Nepal Maoist, uh, you know, they started out as like, you know, ultra Maoists, like Shining Path, but now they've come to a very rational conclusion and they are studying Xi Jinping's writings. Uh, China has built infrastructure in Nepal. Uh, but at the same time, there's still a very anti-China, anti-communist wing of Nepali politics as well, the Congress Party and other, and other things. So there you go. All right. Next question. Uh, DSA booting out the BDS working group. Well, first of all, I don't know for a fact that happened. That's just what someone super chatted. But look, boycott, divestment and sanctions, right? Right. Uh, Zelensky ran on a platform of peace. We'll, we'll talk about that, right? Right. Uh, so the Palestinians have largely called for boycott, divestment and sanctions. They want people to boycott Israel. They want companies to divest and not do business with Israel. And they want sanctions to be imposed on Israel in response to their crimes against the Palestinians. And a number, uh, you know, there, there are a number, you know, the Palestinian movement is very divided. Some want two state. They want a Palestinian state and an Israeli state. Some want a one state solution where where. All the people are absorbed into one state, but two staters and one staters all want boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Um, however, uh, the large talking point of Israel is that uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions is anti-Semitic. And they compare it to Kristallnacht, right? When the Nazis broke the windows of Jewish stores and they say, oh, if you, if you boycott Israel, that's just like the Nazis. I've heard this. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, right? It's like you're boycotting this is over politics. It's not about race, right? You know, it's, you're not saying you're, you know, it's not, you're not, you're not going to, it's not about boycotting Jews. It's about boycotting a country that is committing human rights violations. Right. And, and, uh, you know, I know Ben and Jerry's ice cream, uh, they boycott Israel. A lot of institutions boycott Israel. So across the United States, they passed a number of laws. It is illegal to boycott Israel eh, across the United States. If you're a government employee in a number of states in the United States, you must sign a document that says that you will never boycott Israel. Can you believe this? You have to sign a document. If you want to work as a teacher or a state employee or a state trooper in Alabama or in I think West Virginia and a number of states, you have to sign a document that says you will not boycott Israel. That is ridiculous, right? And in New York, we have a law that basically says that if, if your company boycotts Israel, then the, and the New York state will never do business with you, right? Uh, Andrew Cuomo, our our former governor, he said, if you boycott Israel, then the state of New York will boycott you. You know, and it's this Israel's really scared of boycott, divestment, and sanctions. It has the impact to really do damage to Israel's economy. Um, and you know, a lot of people, a lot of people that aren't 
tankies, aren't hardliners, a lot of socialists, Trotskyites, you know, social Democrats, Bernie Sanders kind of people support boycott, divestment, and sanctions. But among certain forces that are very prominent in DSA, people that are, you know, you know, high up, there is a feeling that um that somehow boycotting Israel is anti-Semitic. Um and I mean, these people are are adamant about that, right? Um, so there you go. All right. Okay. All right. We can talk about that for sure. All right. Very good. So, you know, there are a lot of, there are some social Democrats, people that are at the top of DSA, people at the top of the labor union movement. Bernie Sanders himself uh, opposes boycotting Israel. Noam Chomsky opposes boycotting Israel. Um, there, there are some voices that are just opposed to boycotting Israel. They, they just man, maintain it's anti-Semitic, it's wrong, you can't do it. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of people who support it. And it's a, it's a divisive issue on the left. So it sounds like these forces in the DSA, uh, you know, that they, they support it. What's interesting, you know, when I first came to New York, I didn't realize this, right? Because there's not, I mean, DSA... See, here's the thing you have to remember about DSA. Okay, so DSA started in the 1980s. Okay, we're just going to go over the history of DSA. People love it when I do movement history, so we're just going to... Okay, so, so there, you know, going back to, like, the time of Debs, there was something called the Socialist Party of America. And it was the Socialist Party. And it was the Socialist Party of America. It was led by Eugene Debs after the Russian Revolution. The people who supported the Russian Revolution became the Communist Party. And Debs died, and it was Norman Thomas was the leader of the Socialist Party, and they did not support the Soviet Union. It was the Socialist Party. So, so you know, going up into the 1960s, you know, there was a Trotskyite named Max Schachtman uh, who denounced, who said the Soviet Union was not a workers' state, and the Schachtmanites who were tied in with the CIA, they all joined the Socialist Party, and uh, the United Auto Workers Union. The head of the auto workers union, Victor and Walter Ruther, who were the heads of the UAW, they joined the Socialist Party. The Socialist Party was very much considered the very, very moderate wing of the Socialist movement. Um, it was, it was, it was a group that I mean, they they technically existed and they ran candidates, but they were Democrats. Okay, they were Democrats, and a lot of them supported the Vietnam War. Max Shackman supported the Bay of Pigs invasion because he said Stalinism is so bad, we got to invade Cuba to get rid of it. Right. And some of them, a lot of them supported the Vietnam War. So, but then as the political crisis of the 1960s got going, uh, there became a big division uh, in the, the Socialist Party. And ultimately the Socialist Party dissolved. And the early, early 70s, the Socialist Party broke apart. It broke into three factions. The first faction uh, was 100% against the Vietnam War. And it was led by David McReynolds. And David McReynolds was gay. Uh, he was the first openly gay man to run uh, for president, and and they were pacifists, uh, and they they were 100% opposed to the Vietnam War, and they became the Socialist Party USA, and they still exist. Uh, there's a guy named, the guy who controls them now is a guy named Greg Payson. It's like Greg Payson's little kingdom, but the Socialist Party USA, right? They're highly influential. If you were highly influential, both culture and political in America, what type things would you promote? Top five things would you promote? All right. Sorry about that, folks. All right. Okay. Oh, culturally and politically. All right. 
And so you had, you had, you know, the Socialist Party. And then there was another faction that was not 100% against the Vietnam War. They were kind of against the Vietnam War. And they were led by Irving Howe. And um, Irving Howe and, oh God, what is his name? Michael Harrington. Michael Harrington was a, a young man who became a Shackmanite Trotskyist and then joined the Socialist Party with Max Shackman. Irving Howe was also a Shackmanite Trotskyite who worked for the Partisan Review and was part of the CIA's Congress for Cultural Freedom program. Irving Howe and um, and uh, Irving Howe and Michael Harrington they formed Democratic the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee, and then there was another faction called Social Democrats USA, and they 100% supported the Vietnam War. They were so anti-communist that they supported the Vietnam War. They endorsed Ronald Reagan during the 1980s. So. There were these three factions and there was Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee. Uh, there was some form. And then there was a group called the New American Movement. And it was former members of, of the civil rights movement who were trying to form some kind of patriotic, uh, patriotic, um, you know, social democratic group kind of carrying on the traditions of Martin Luther King Jr. and the Poor People's March, the New American Movement. But over the course of the 1970s, a lot of the Maoist groups kind of lost their way because China was changing and this, you know, China was in this anti-Soviet frenzy and the world communist movement was in a state of confusion and the political struggle of the 1970s was declining. So during that period, um, you had a lot of Maoists uh, just kind of throw in the towel and say, all right, you know, we're, we're not communists, you know, we're just gonna, we're just gonna stop being communists. And so in these times magazine was started and Michael Harrington and Irving Howe said, you know what, if you want to, if you want to not be, not be a communist anymore, you want to be more, more rational, be more down to earth, join this new group. And they formed, I believe in 19, what is it? 1982, 1983, they formed Democratic Socialists of America. From the beginning, the CIA was all over Democratic Socialists of America. Irving Howe, was part of the Congress for Cultural Freedom program. His work was being promoted by the CIA and Partisan Review and in like the New York Times book review. And, you know, he was like, he was the supporter of Israel. He said anyone who protests Israel is anti-Semitic. And he was just this long time, you know, he, he was writing articles that were published in the New York Times saying that, uh, you know, the Vietnam War protesters were too soft on the Stalinist Ho Chi Minh. And, you know, he was just this long time shill, uh, you know, shill of the establishment tied to the CIA. Gloria Steinem, Gloria Steinem, who was kind of the face of American feminism uh, in the 1970s. She was just like the top feminist in America, the founder of Ms. Magazine. Gloria Steinem was a founding member of DSA. Gloria Steinem admits in her autobiography that she, the way she got into politics was she was working for the CIA. Uh, the CIA basically helped her set up a front group, and they went to the World Festival of Youth and Students in Vienna, Austria. And she and Barney Frank and, and uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski went there pretending to be socialist students. And they got in and they set off smoke bombs and acted like fools, you know, um, and they tried to sabotage the Communist Youth Festival in Vienna. So, you know, you know, the CIA has its fingerprints all over DSA, has from the beginning. But the weird thing about DSA is it's a lot of college professors. Barbara Einreich, um, you know, Cornell West. A lot of a lot of college professors, a lot of people with ties to the CIA, and they kind of they kind of go in and out. Sometimes 
Sometimes they're active, sometimes they're not. They're active when the bourgeoisie needs them. Right? During the 1980s, as the communist, like Maoist, new communist movement was collapsing, they were necessary to kind of scoop all these people up and kind of control them. But then, you know, in the 90s, people didn't know DSA existed. Uh, people used to joke that DSA was like, uh, you know, it was a dinner that happened once a year. But then again, you know, in the early 90s, you know, John Sweeney became the head of the AFL-CIO, and he was like a DSA member. And so people said, well, DSA is a labor union group. People said DSA is kind of a club for labor union bureaucrats. People who work in the high ranks of the labor movement are in DSA. And more radical people, you know, that, that are more radical in the labor movement are in solidarity or Liberation Road or Freedom Road or whatever. But, but you know, high-ranking labor bureaucrats like John Sweeney and Trumpka and people like that, Richard Trumpka, they're in DSA. It's this club for like the, the, the high-ranking labor bureaucrats. And then during the Iraq war protests, DSA, I mean, they would sign, they would endorse all the big protests against the war, but no one knew they still existed. People would see their name and they'd be like, is that group still around? They had this newspaper that it looked like it was printed at someone's house. Like it wasn't even like newsprint. It was on like paper. You know, it looked like someone printed it on their printer and stapled it. It was called like Democratic Left. And people joked that, I mean, DSA was almost like it didn't exist. It was this like this association for college professors. People didn't know it existed. But then when the Bernie Sanders movement got going in 2016, at that point, suddenly DSA was a thing again. DSA suddenly was having meetings and bowling nights, and now everyone wants to join DSA, and it's this big thing. DSA suddenly has energy again. So again, if the political crisis is resolved, if the United States goes back to having political stability, DSA will kind of fade away. But right now, there's a lot of people that are angry at the establishment. There's a lot of fighting within the ruling class. The ruling class needs somebody to kind of lead progressives to do their bidding, to be their foot soldiers. So DSA exists. It's, you know, DSA are, you know, they're like, I don't know, they're like sheep herders for leftists, right? You know, the idea is whenever there's people that have left-wing views and are thinking critically of capitalism, there's a danger that they might, you know, become revolutionaries or something. So DSA is this crew of people that exist to kind of, when there are radical upsurges, lead the people, say, okay, you're radical, come this way, come this way. And they always have lots of money and always lots of resources. And whenever there's a big upsurge, you know, in the labor movement or something, out of the blue, they just kind of show up. Suddenly they're alive again. You know, it's like Dracula in his coffin suddenly wakes up from the coffin and he says, okay, I'm here to be the boss and lead you back into supporting the Democratic Party. That's basically why DSA exists, okay? Um, but that said, that doesn't mean everyone in DSA is an evil reformist. A lot of people in DSA are great people. And uh, I've recruited, there are a lot of members, there's a couple members of CP, uh, CPI that were recruited from DSA because I went, started going to DSA meetings in Long Island. And, um, you know, we should go to DSA, meet people in DSA, and recruit people in DSA. But you have to do it with the understanding you're never going to take over the DSA. There's a lot of people who get into this internal thing and they're like, well, we're going to outmaneuver and get more votes. No, you're not. DSA is rigged. It's rigged. Just like the Communist Party is rigged. You're not going to take over DSA. And with all due respect to Haas, you're not going to take over the Communist Party. These groups are rigged, right? Trust me. Many people have tried to take over the DSA and it's never worked. Many people have tried to take over the Communist Party. It's not going to work. These groups are rigged. However, they're a great place to meet people. So if you're in CPI, 
I would encourage you to join the DSA and meet people, right? Great place to meet people and bring them to actual socialism, right? Uh, you know, and DS, uh, CPI is not a party. It's a think tank. We allow membership. You can be a member of any party. So, but don't think you're going to move DSA to the left. You won't. Don't think that you're going to take over DSA and make it a revolutionary group. You won't. That's not how it works. And that said, it appears that the people at the top of DSA are not, they don't believe in boycott, investment, and sanctions. So that's, that's all there is to that, um, you know. And yeah, go, and, go to DSA, meet people, win them to socialism, sell CPI books, you know, recruit them to, to watch these streams and become part of our community. But don't fall into the illusion that you're going to recruit or you're going to take over DSA because you won't. It's a good place to meet people, but it's not, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's controlled. It's rigged. Trust me, it's rigged. Okay. Okay. And social Democrats and Democratic Socialists. All right. The next question is East versus West. Where does it come from? Does it come from the Byzantine? All right. So at the time of the fall of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire divided in two. And you had the Byzantine Empire. And then you add the uh, the rule of what's his name? I can't remember his name. The what the king, the guy that was like the king of of Central Europe. I can't even remember his name. His name is escaping me. That guy who was like the king of Central Europe. I can't remember his name. And um, and and then you had the Byzantine Empire. Um, well, and the Byzantine was like that's like Russia and Eastern Europe, and and the Roman Empire was. What was his name for the life of me? Charlemagne. Thank you. Thank you, Captain Waffles. Charlemagne, right? You had Charlemagne in the West, in like France and Germany, and then you had the Byzantine Empire in the East, and Greece and in other places. I don't think that's where the East-West divide comes from. Uh, many people, and I think Justin Simons, who's a member of the Center for Political Innovation, has pointed out that NATO is based on the myth of the West. I mean, NATO. It refers to itself as the West. Why? I mean, there's NATO. Romania is a member of NATO right now. There's threats that Ukraine might be a member of NATO, even though Brzezinski says they never will be. It, it, there is no West. All right? There is no West. Is Australia part of the West? I mean, uh, apparently it is, but, I mean, it's not West. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a continent pretty darn close to Asia. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, I mean, when people say West, they mean the capitalist countries, the capitalist imperialist homelands. They mean Britain, France, United States, Australia, Germany, Italy. That's what they mean. And there's no, it has nothing to do with geography. It, you know, Adam M says the West is just Anglo-liberalism. And that's basically what it means. Yes, there there is no West. West is kind of a mythological concept. And there's no ideology that really holds the West together. I mean, Anglo ideology and Atlanticism kind of dominates the West, but that there's a lot of people in Germany and in France and in Italy and other places that really don't identify that. Mediterranean culture is very different than and British Atlanticist culture, right? Uh, so, you know, I mean, there's big cultural differences. There's, you know, I, there is no West. The West is, there's no, there, you really can't, come up with anything to define the West. But part of NATO is this belief in the democratic West, the humanitarian West. What about Franco in Spain? Was he part of the democratic West? You know, uh, you know, what about Mussolini? Was he part of the democratic West? You know, or, or uh, Berlusconi more recently, right? I mean, I mean, it's just, you know, or Charles de Gaulle. 
you know, and dirgeism, dirgeist economics in, in France. I mean, it's just, you know, there, there's nothing, there's no common value. There's no common identity. There is no West. West is an imperialist myth. And that's why, you know, these, you know, these proud boys, right? These, these white supremacist proud boys that, you know, think everyone they don't like is a communist and, and are pretty racist and stuff. One of the things they chant at their rallies is West is the best. West is the best. Uh, and I've said many times that's I don't be Vosch's slogan too. That's what he thinks, right? It's this belief that, you know, Britain, France, the United States, Australia, Denmark, Sweden, we're like democratic people. We, we have these democratic values and we're more advanced than those primitive people in Russia or in uh, China or in Eastern Europe or in Africa and Asia. And we, we as the democratic advanced West must lead the world out of the primitivism of their backward way. It's, it's all a bunch of bullshit. It's all a bunch of bullshit. All right. Next question. Uh, the odds that a no-fly zone is created over Ukraine. Hi. No, they're quite low. Because anyone with common sense knows that uh, that would mean war with Russia. Uh, the, the reason these no-fly zone rallies are being mobilized is to intimidate Russia. It's a threat that they might do it. They're not going to do it. And uh, it's a way to make the Ukrainian you know, movement, if you might call it that, seem more radical, right? Oh, look, they're demanding something, you know. Oh, you say Biden supports Ukraine, but he won't do the no-fly zone. It's a way to like create the illusion that if you protest for Ukraine, you're like standing up for the man or something. Yeah. No-fly zone over Ukraine means shooting down Russian planes, means World War III, means nukes going off. It's never going to happen. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. But, you know, it's it's something, you know, something that's, you know, I mean, if that were to happen, there would be World War III. Next question. Next question. Uh, CPI solution to gentrification. Easy. Easy solution to gentrification. You're going to hear the solution? One, the, you know, fine landlords for every empty apartment. They should have an inspection every year. Every year they should have an inspection. And in major urban centers, if landlords have empty apartment buildings, you fine them for it. Easy. There should be a tax or a fine for every empty apartment unit. And if you did that, landlords would then be desperate to fill up the buildings. And in doing so, you would see the rent go down. The reason gentrification is happening, the rent is rising, is be because of real estate speculation. A lot of real estate owners in urban areas don't make profits really from people renting. They make profits from property values going up. And gentrification is a game where you try to drive the property values up. You try to make the house more valuable, right? The idea is you buy the building and then you renovate it and you make it fancier and then you make some, you know, some classy restaurants open up in the neighborhood. And even if only two people live in the damn building, the value of the building has increased, has tripled. Then you sell it to somebody else and they wait for the market to change and then they sell it. It's like, it's like the stock market. It's called real estate speculation. And that's what drives gentrification is they're constantly trying to make the property values in urban areas go up. New York City is a great example of this, but Chicago, you know, Atlanta, you know, you know, uh, in Brazil, Rio de Janeiro, this is happening all over the world. This is happening where capitalists have figured out a way that they can make profit from housing without anybody living in the damn housing. Well, President Xi Jinping has said, no, housing is for living and not for speculation. And really, if you want to stop this, you just have to impose a tax on empty apartment units. 
If someone, if you own an apartment building and any of those buildings are empty, not only do you not get that rent money, uh, but you get a fine. You get hit with a fine. You get a fine for having an empty housing unit. Boom. And then landlords would immediately be dropping the rent and desperate to get people to live there. That's the solution. You need to, uh, you know, you need to impose a penalty for empty housing units. New York City, there are something like 12 housing units for every homeless person in this city. It's absolutely ridiculous. The rent keeps rising and going higher and higher and higher. And the number of empty apartment buildings in New York City is constantly going up as well. Ridiculous. All right. Is the party take or back? Not anytime soon. Not anytime soon. Um, you know, the Russian Communist Party is a very important political party in Russia. Very important party. Uh, they control a lot of areas. There's a lot of regions where they're very important. Uh, there's a lot of people that are very loyal to the party. And not, you know, it's it's largely elderly folks, but th there's a lot of young people in the party that have given it kind of new energy. Um, but right now, the way they are functioning, uh, they are functioning, you know, they, they, they're not they're not operating in the way that, as a, of a party that's trying to seize power. Uh, they see themselves as the more, the more social democratic and more anti-imperialist wing of the Putin government. That's what they see themselves as. Um, they don't see themselves as a group that's trying to like you know storm the barricades and take power. And that's correct. I think that they basically want to move that. Uh, they want to move Russia to be more like Venezuela. They want more social programs. And they wanted, like, they, they called for driving McDonald's out of Russia a long time ago. Right now, McDonald's has divested from Russia. Well, go back to 2013, the Communist Party was saying to outlaw McDonald's. You know, uh, the Communist Party in Russia doesn't like the Mormons because the Mormon church is tied to the CIA. So they, you know, there's, there's you know, documentaries of the Mormon churches uh, that open up, you know, the Mormon churches that open up in Russia. You have the Communist Party protesting outside with CIA, CIA, and they got signs. Political realignment expressed by right-wingers on Ukraine. All right. Okay. Okay. Political. <laughs> and, you know, they're protesting CIA, CIA, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's, you know, they are a, an important wing of Russian politics. Um, you know, there's, they're one of the major parties. So you have the United Russia Party, which Putin used to be a member of. Now Putin is not a member of any party, but he was originally a member of the United Russia Party. And then you have the, the Communist Party, which is the second largest political party. And then you have the Liberal Democratic Party, which is a far right-wing party. It's very anti-Islamic and very authoritarian, kind of a military you know, party, uh, traditionalist czarist party. Um, and there's a number of other political parties. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's, those are the major parties in Russia. All right. Jehovah's Witnesses in Russia. It's illegal to be a Jehovah's Witness in Russia. They're outlawed as a religion. And the reason is because they don't believe in getting blood transfusions for their children. Right? Part of their religion is they believe blood transfusions are not okay. There's a verse in the Bible, I guess, that they interpret as saying you can't give your kids blood transfusions. And Russia says that's not okay. That's a threat to public health. And they are outlawed. They are not recognized as an official religion. That doesn't mean that if you're in your home and you believe that, they drag you away in the middle of the night. It just means they're not allowed to get tax status as a church, and they're not allowed to set up as, as, a, as a religious group because they advocate things that are a threat to public health. Um, you know, and that's, that happened, and that was very controversial. There was a lot of reporting about that. You know, how dare they? Um, greedy homeowners and zoning laws is what artificially restricts housing, thus increasing the price. Yeah. And... Um, 
yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically all there is to that. Um, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses are a religious group. They were started in the early part of the 20th century. They were originally the Watchtower Bible Society. They have a specific interpretation of, of the Bible that is kind of at odds with the rest of Christianity. Um, they don't believe in a, a, an afterlife. Um, they argue that there is heaven. There's this other place where God and the angels are. And at the end of time, heaven combines with earth and Eden is restored. The Garden of Eden comes back, but they don't maintain that you like go to heaven or hell when you die. Um, they say rather at the end of time, this like God and his angels come back to earth and restore the Garden of Eden. Um, they also don't believe in having, um, having, uh, uh, clergy. They believe every Christian should be a clergy member. And, uh, they're really big on knocking, you know, on promote proselytization, you know, promoting their religion, knocking on people's doors and trying to convert them to their religion. They're very, very big into that. Um, and they're very bookish and, uh, their beliefs are very complex. Um, you know. Very, very complex religious beliefs, um, not simple stuff, not, you know, not, you know, and they will talk to you, by the way. If they knock on your door, you can ask them any question in the world. They will talk to you about their religion. No problem doing that. Whereas, you know, Mormons, the, the, the two religious groups that will knock on your door, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Jehovah's Witnesses will talk to you about everything. They will talk to you about everything. You can ask them any question and they will answer it. On the other hand, uh, the Mormons will not answer questions. They, they are not there to talk to you about Mormonism. They don't want to talk about Joseph Smith. They don't want to talk about the golden plates. They don't want to talk about any of that. They want to say, Hey, have you ever read the book of Mormon? It's a nice book. And we have a nice church where we have, you know, bingo night or whatever. They do not want to talk to you about any of it. It's kind of hilarious. It's kind of an opposite approach. Uh, you know, one of the groups recruits in terms of promoting their actual beliefs, which are very complex. The other group, their beliefs are only after you've kind of joined their community and this has become your social circle. And then they gradually start opening up to you about what their beliefs are. Very, very interesting stuff. All right. We're speeding right through it. Speeding right through it. All right. Next question. Zelensky ran on a platform of peace, but he hasn't carried it out. That's right. Because Zelensky, most people in Ukraine want this fighting to be over. Most people in Ukraine don't want their, the people in the Eastern regions to be bombed. Most people in Ukraine, you know, don't want to be antagonizing Russia and provoking conflict. Most people in Ukraine just want to get along. They just want to live their lives. Um, whereas there is this fanatical division, the Azov Battalion and other folks that are just committed to this Ukrainian nationalist narrative of history. And they want to fight Russia and they hate Russia. And those folks, um, those folks are not the majority, but they have threatened Zelensky. They've been calling for his ouster. They've been calling for a new a new Euro maiden and a new revolution to topple him. Um, so there you go. There you go. All right. Next question. Reform or revolution? All right. Well, here, here's the thing, right? And this is very important, right? When, when we talk about revolution, we don't mean violent revolution. Revolution just means the change from one system to another, right? You can have a political revolution, which is just a change in government, or you can have a social revolution, which is a you know, change in social system. But we don't advocate violence. We advocate a peaceful transition. Violent revolutions happen because capitalists and the ruling class won't allow a peaceful transition. You know, the Russian revolution happened because the, you know, the, the provisional government was cracking down and there was about to be, there was this, you know, they called the Kornilov reaction where they were trying to crush crush the Soviets and crush the Bolsheviks. And 
And so they had no choice but to rise up. And in China, you know, Mao wanted to form a coalition government, the Chiang Kai-shek, wanted to be part of a coalition government. However, Chiang Kai-shek wouldn't allow it and was trying to forcibly disarm the Chinese communists and, and make them, you know, give, give up control of the areas they'd liberated from Japan. There was a, only a violent revolution because the capitalists wanted. We advocated peaceful transition to socialism through the democratic process. The capitalists, on the other hand, are likely to move toward fascism or some kind of military state or some, you know, they're, they're likely to abolish democracy and suppress people's right to organize. And under such circumstances, people have the right to defend themselves. You know, the Black Panthers, it was the Black Panther Party for self-defense. They were defending their communities from police brutality. You know, they, the Black community had peacefully organized and there had been violent campaigns against them. So they formed self-defense groups. Um, all right. Past Independence Station. All right. And wrote it down. And, you know, you know, revolutions happen because people are people are forced to defend themselves. And it's the capitalists and their system that foments violence and advocating violence, what they call left adventurism or blankeyism or punchism. These are deviations of Marxism. These are petty bourgeois ultra leftist trends. Working class people don't want violence. They don't want violence in their communities. They don't want violence in their neighborhoods. And if you go around advocating a civil war or advocating terrorism or violence, you're going to, you're going to isolate yourself from the working class. We should come up with serious policy solutions that we want to see changed and rally people around those solutions and build communities of struggle and communities of solidarity about you know, those solutions. That's the answer. Um, and anyone who goes around advocating civil war, you know, that they're not working class. Now, that said, we do want a new state and that, you know, that socialism will mean getting rid of, you know, getting rid of the FBI and the CIA and the Pentagon and creating a new kind of military and a new kind of police force and a new kind of intelligence apparatus. Right. And so you have to change the state. Right. And that part of revolution is it's not simply about you know, getting elected and taking hold of the capitalist state as it exists. It's about building a new state to serve working class power. And that's important as well. Generally, revolutions have three stages. There is the demands, you know, and the and the united front that is created uh, that that comes forward, and society is rallied around something that they want, like peace, land, and bread, like land reform, like defeating the Japanese invaders, like redistributing, you know, land to the peasantry, like you know, an eight-hour workday. There's a, a movement that emerges around a specific program, and. The communists, uh, you know, and, and they, they lead the people in building a huge united front around that program. And then they take power and, you know, they take power and they start enacting that program. But in order to enact that program, they need to create a new state because you can't enact a working class socialist program with a capitalist state. So when they move from the united front to taking control of the state, uh, and when they start changing the nature of the state, that's called establishing the dictatorship of the proletariat, right? Because under, under capitalism, we have the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. But when you start creating a new police force and a new intelligence agency and a new military to serve the people, create, create, you, you're creating the mechanisms of what they call the dictatorship of the proletariat. You're eradicating the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie and you're establishing the dictatorship of the proletariat. And then... You know, once you have the dictatorship of the proletariat, at that point, you can create a full-on socialist economy. 
So the first step toward building socialism is mobilizing society and building a united front around a program, a serious program, things that people can actually see happening in their lives that would make their lives better. Then that will eventually necessitate the dictatorship of the proletariat and the dictatorship of the proletariat will eventually lead to the creation of a socialist economy. And that's how it works. All right. Next question. All right. Uh, top five things I would promote culturally and politically. I mean, wow. I mean, I mean, that's quite a question. Top five things I would promote culturally and politically. Well, I mean, the economic program I've always advanced is, you know, a mass mobilization to rebuild the country in terms of infrastructure, public control of our natural resources, oil, gas, coal, and timber, public control of the banking system, and an economic bill of rights like Roosevelt advocated. Plus, I advocate good relations with countries around the world and changing the economic relationship of the United States with the world, restructuring our economy to be based on win-win cooperation and not being hostile to Russia and China, dismantling this global system of monopoly capitalism and moving toward a rational socialist economy where growth is unlimited uh, and unrestrained by the irrationality of greed. Uh, I don't know who that is. I don't know enough about it to say that. All right. Next question. Um, what is the difference between social Democrats and democratic socialists? Okay. Again, these are semantical differences. Okay. But originally when Karl Marx was alive, all kinds of people were calling themselves socialists and socialism was not very easily defined. It was a vague term. If you were critical of capitalism, you were a socialist, right? And you had different socialists, Robert Owen and Franz Fourier and St. Simon. Okay, Trotz claim Lenin. And um, Franz Fourier and all kinds of people were calling themselves socialists for all kinds of different reasons. So Karl Marx comes along with his specific dialectical materialist view of history. And he calls it scientific socialism because it's not utopian, it's not religious, and it's based on an understanding of history. And they start using the term communist to separate themselves from the other schools of socialism that are out there because it's like there's all kinds of different socialism, but they're referring to their specific brand. So they published the Communist Manifesto. They formed the Communist League in Germany. Um, yeah. But then, you know, the International Working Men's Association that Karl Marx created becomes taken over by crazy anarchists, people that advocate violence and left adventurism. So at that point, um, you know, you know, around the time of Marx's death, around the time that, you know, the Germans, G Germans are forming a new workers party, they say, okay, we're not going to call ourselves communists because we don't want people to think we're bomb throwing anarchists. So they call their party, the social democratic party of Germany, right? They, they believe in democracy, but they want to expand democracy to the economy. They believe in social democracy. And after Marx's death, starting in like the 1890s, 1880s, 1890s, the term social democrat was the term that Marxists used. Marxists said, we are social democrats. It was so a way to distinguish themselves from, from bomb-throwing crazy anarchists and, and others. They said, well, we're social democrats. We're building labor unions. We're building a democratic workers' movement. But then World War I happened, and all the social democratic parties, all these Marxist parties, supported World War I. And Lenin had opposed World War I. Rosa Luxemburg had opposed World War One. All this, the real revolutionaries had opposed World War One, but the major social democratic parties in Europe, the Labour Party in Britain, other other parties supported World War One. 
So Lenin, when the Bolsheviks took power in Russia, they said, we're going to call ourselves communists. So people don't think we're social Democrats. So people don't associate us with these parties that sold out in support of World War I. And so, again, these terms are just kind of interchangeable. Now, social democracy is the term for like the British Labor Party, uh, the Norwegian Social Democratic Party, the French Socialist Party, refers to anti-communist parties that are more or less pro-imperialist, but advocate, you know, gradually getting to socialism one step at a time. A lot of them don't even believe that anymore. In Britain, you know, the Labor Party has removed Clause 4 from their constitution. They don't even believe in gradually getting to socialism anymore. They just believe in a welfare state, right? A lot of the social democratic parties have at this point denounced Marxism. They just believe in a welfare state. However, right, you know, that guy, Michael Harrington, who was one of the founders of DSA, Michael Harrington. Michael Harrington wrote this book called Socialism, explaining his beliefs, which I actually have somewhere around here. It's a big book. It's dedicated to his mentor, Max Schachtman, the CIA Trotskyist. And Michael Harrington denounced European social democracy. And when he was founding DSA, he denounced European social democracy. He said the Labor Party in Britain's not creating socialism. They're not creating worker-run factories. They're not nationalizing industries enough. And so DSA, in order to appear more radical, in order to not sound like the British Labor Party, in order to not sound like the British uh, or the French socialists or the German West German social democratic parties, party, Schroeder and others, they said, well, we're democratic socialists. We're not social democrats uh, because they said that social democracy was inherently reformist and they ultimately advocated, you know, a, a, you know, participatory workers democracy or something like that. But in practice, DSA are social democrats. I mean, in practice, what do they do? They campaign for Democrats. They want gradual reforms that eventually lead to what they believe in. They're not, they're not, indis- they're, they're pretty indistinguishable from social democracy, but because they, they want to make clear that they don't simply advocate a Norwegian welfare state, they do want to create some kind of working class society where the workers own the factories. They say, well, we're democratic socialists, whereas the Labor Party in Britain, Tony Blair is a social democrat, basically. Um, that's what that's about. It's, it's a semantical word salad. All right. The current political realignment is expressed by right-wingers. Thank you for the super chat. Left is best. Um, look, I've told people that right now, people that are at odds with the direction that American imperialism is going in are largely on the right. If you're a working class person and you don't support U.S. imperialism and you don't like the woke makeover that imperialism is getting and you're skeptical of big pharma or anything in mainstream media, you get called a right winger. Uh, you get called a conspiracy theorist. And it's the Republicans that are giving any voice to criticism of the status quo. So based on that, you know, again, Candace Owens, who I loathe in many ways, a lot of what she says is just abhorrent to me. She's saying stuff about Russia that, you know, she's calling Ukraine a very corrupt country, et cetera. And that, look, we need to be able to recruit people on the right to socialism. We need to, you know, at this point, people on the right are more open to what we're about than people on the left. The left is completely controlled, completely used. And if someone, and that's why I almost don't want to tell people I'm a communist anymore because then people think I'm one of these wokes. You know, they'll think I'm one of these people running around for Ukraine and calling everyone who doesn't agree with me a Nazi and all of this. But at the end of the day, look, we should be able to talk to anybody, right? Right wing, left wing, whatever. But right now it seems like dissident elements are being pushed to the right, which is scary to me because the right is associated with anti-immigrant bigotry, which I don't agree with. The right is associated with, um, 
with you know free market neoliberalism, which I absolutely don't agree with. However, at this point, the right are the people that are questioning anything mainstream media says, and the left are people who want you thrown in jail or banned from social media if you question anything, right? So, you know, I mean, that, I mean, it's like we're in a weird spot right now politically. It's uncomfortable, but we just have to figure out. At the end of the day, we just have to do our thing, right? We're not part of the synthetic left. We're not trying to lead the movement, you know, you know, we're not part of the synthetic left, but we're not part of the right either. We're not anti-immigrant. You know, we're not uh, we're not supporting, uh, you know, privatizing everything. We're not libertarians. We're our own thing. Marxists, socialists, anti-imperialists, 21st century socialism. We're our own thing. Right. We are our own thing. We're not on the right. We're not on the left. We're our own thing. We have our own beliefs and we're aligned with the anti-imperialist countries. Uh, you know, you know, we're a lot, you know, the, the ideology that they have in Venezuela, that they have in Nicaragua, that they have in China, they have in Vietnam is not left or right. It's just what it is. 21st century socialism, right? 21st century socialism, Marxism in our time is its own thing. And it's not aligned with the left and it's not aligned with the right. It used to be that the left were people that were closer to what we're about. And now that's not true. The left are more anti-China, more anti-Russia. Uh, the so-called left are more believing in the mainstream status quo. We are our own thing. We have our own beliefs. And, and our movement that is fighting for peace, jobs, democracy, and equality, for workers' power, for dismantling imperialism, um, it's, it's separate from both of them. It's our own thing. That's all we can say about it. But don't you think the right's new anti-imperialism is just an unprincipled shift? Of course, right? The Democrats pretended to be anti-war during Bush's war, but then they came to power and they continued the wars. Of course, right? You think Ted Cruz is, is, is honest? You think he really... You know, is, do you think Candace Owens really, you know, really supports the people of Donetsk and Lugansk? Of course not. So, yes, it's dishonest, right? There's lying politicians with both the Democrats and the Republican Party. We just have to do our own thing. We have to do our own thing. We are a separate entity. You know, we, what we want, what we want is good for America's working families. We want to build an anti-monopoly coalition as big as possible. But we have our own agenda. We're not loyal to the left. We're not loyal to the right. We're loyal to opposing imperialism. We're loyal to the working class, fighting for you know a government of action that fights for working families. We, we just have to keep that in mind. We're doing our own thing. And we need to get out of the movement and get to the masses. A last independent station in Russia shut down. What does independent mean? Do you ever, I mean, I mean what, is, what is their criteria for independent? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm just like, you know, I hear stuff like that all the time too, right? It's funny because I heard that there was no free media in Russia five years ago. So, so it turns out they were lying five years ago because this last independent radio station shut down. I mean, it's come on. I mean, this is just stupid, right? There is a lot of different views in Russia. There are TV networks in Russia that have diametrically opposed views to each other. There are people in Russia who feel vote for the Communist Party. There are people in Russia who hate communism with all their heart and soul. There are people in Russia that are deeply religious. There are people in Russia that are very secular. There are Muslims in Russia. There are more Muslims in Russia than in any other non-Muslim country. So NPR, I mean, I mean, according to them, I mean, what's their criteria? What by what criteria do they consider that radio station to be free? You know, I mean, it's dumb, right? I mean, a lot of media in Russia does get government subsidies. So does that make it not free just because it gets government subsidies? And does that make PBS not free media in the United States? I don't know. I mean, I mean, who knows? It's dumb. I, I just, 
you know, and again, they said it. So, I mean, it's just, you know, take their word for it. Right. And if you disagree, oh, you're spreading Russian conspiracy theories. I mean, discourse has gotten so dumb about anything related to Russia and the United States. You can't have a rational conversation about these things. I mean, you know, what do they mean by free? Because they said so. I mean, it's just it's so dumb. All right. Why do Trotz claim Lenin over Stalin? Because after the death of Lenin, Stalin uh, very much built a, you know, built up the, the cult of personality around Lenin. You know, they put Lenin in the mausoleum. Uh, you know, they, they, um, RT is not gone. You can watch RT. Go to RT.com. Click, click live. You can watch it. You can't watch it on, you know, on US television. You can't watch it on YouTube, but RT is not gone. I don't know where you got that memo, but RT is definitely not gone. Uh, go to RT.com right now. Hit live. Go to Rumble. No, RT's not gone, my friend. You got some bad info there. It's just being censored, but it's not gone. It's not gone. But anyway, um, why do Trotz claim Lenin over Stalin? The reason for that um, is because of the fact that after Lenin died, Stalin very much made a cult of personality around Lenin, right? They put him in a mausoleum. Uh, they put him in a mausoleum and they... Um, Yes, I am. I'm definitely working on some projects. I'm working on a new book. I've got some other projects in the works. Can't say too much about it, but I am definitely working on some stuff. Um, they put him in the mausoleum and they, you know, they kind of eulogized him. And so Trotsky, in order to defend himself, tried to say he was the true Leninist, that, that Stalin had deviated from Lenin's ideology and he was the true Leninist. That was basically the, the, the approach that Trotsky had. Um, and also Trotsky's legacy with Lenin was a big point of defensiveness. Trotsky, uh, you know, had not joined the Bolsheviks, you know, when the Bolsheviks were created, the party of new type, he didn't join it. Um, he didn't join it. And at that point, You know, this is just a troll. I, RT America closed down, my friend. I did clean out my desk at RT America. Like, come on. You know, these are dumb people in the chat that are always just trying to look for any little stupid thing they can, whatever. Anyway, moving on, you know, you know, God, people are so dumb. But anyway, you know, um, you know, but anyway, so, so Trotsky was at odds with Lenin for most of his life. He, he was opposed, you know, he was putting forward the idea of a United States of Europe, right? Lenin said, no, we don't want all the imperialist countries to unite into one. That'll strengthen imperialism. Uh, you know, he refused to form a party of new type. And instead, he wanted to form something called the August Bloc, which would be like the radical wing of social democracy. And Lenin, Lenin and Trotsky were at odds. Trotsky didn't join the Bolsheviks until July of 1917. So Trotsky, the fact that Lenin had written pages and pages denouncing him, denouncing his theory of permanent revolution, denouncing him on the peasant question, the fact that denouncing him on the United States of Europe question, that was a point of defensiveness on Trotsky's part. So if Trotsky was going to defend himself against Stalin, he had to say, well, actually, I'm the true Leninist and you're watering down Leninism. You're, you know, you, you built a mausoleum to Lenin, but you're actually distorting his ideas. Trotsky didn't stand a chance. If Trotsky got up and said, well, Lenin was wrong and I'm right, he didn't stand a chance at that point. However, if you look at the disagreements that Trotsky had with Lenin, they very much stayed alive. 
they very much stayed. They kept going. They kept going for a long time after, after Trotsky joined the Bolsheviks and after Trotsky ultimately, you know, you know, was kicked out of the Soviet Union. For example, what did the Trotskyites do? They joined the Social Democrats. Lenin said you need to have an independent party. You need to have a Bolshevik party, a party of a new type. Well, the Trotskyites, after they got kicked out of the communist parties, they had what they called the French turn, and they joined the Socialist Party. They joined the Socialist Party in France. They joined the Socialist Party in the United States. They joined the Labor Party in the United Kingdom. That's what they did, right? And, uh, you know, also on the peasant question, Lenin said that, you know, you need to have a united front of the workers and peasants. Well, Trotsky, read what he wrote about the Chinese revolution. He was hostile to Mao. And he said that the Chinese revolution was pretty hopeless because it was a peasant revolution. What was that about? It was about the fact that, you know, that he had that hostility to the peasants. Trotsky advocated a United States of Europe. And his theory of permanent revolution said all that matters is when you, when you spread communism, communism to the Western countries. And, uh, Lenin said the revolutionary energy is going to come from the East. It's going to come from Africa and Asia. And, and, you know, it'll come from the impoverished countries that are kept poor by imperialism. Well, what does Trotsky do? Trotsky immediately denounces the Soviet Union for not spreading communism to the West. And Trotsky also, at that point, uh, you know, he denounces Stalin. In his biography of Stalin, he calls Stalin Asiatic. And says Stalin's just not European enough. He's an Asiatic tyrant, you know? So all the things that Trotsky disagreed with Lenin about, the peasant question, the United States of Europe, the centrality of the West, uh, you know, the, you know, all of that, uh, you know, the belief that he wanted to be like the radical wing of the social democrats, all of that, all of that, he kept believing. Trotsky was still Trotsky. Trotsky believed communism, you know, Marxism was just the more radical wing of European social democracy. He believed that Europe and the United States were the hope. He called New York City the foundry where the fate of mankind will be forged. He was all obsessed with Europe. He was kind of a self-hating Russian, a self-hating Ukrainian. He hated peasants. He believed peasants were a backward class that couldn't make a revolution. Uh, he was a, you know, kind of a first world chauvinist. That's Trotsky. That's Trotsky. And, you know, that didn't change. Trotsky claimed when he joined the Bolsheviks that he repudiated all the stuff he'd said before, but he did. And you can go watch my class on Trotsky. Go watch the Saxton lectures. I gave the Saxton lectures last, last June. Um, and they're, they're, you know, a very, very good introduction to Marxist ideology. First class is on Marx. The second class is on uh, Bolshevism. The third class is on the Soviet Union and the rise of, of, of the Communist Party USA. The fourth class is about, um, is about 21st century socialism. The fifth class, uh, you know, in the afternoon classes, the, the fifth class is about the revolutionary intelligentsia and how it's separate from the working class. And the next class after that is on Trotskyism and why Trotskyism is not revolutionary. The third class is on how the CIA created the synthetic left. And the fourth class is about our own ideology and the city building tendency and what the Center for Political Innovation believes. It's an eight class series I gave last summer. Some of my best work. Um, it really is. If you want to know what, what it's all about, if you want to understand the ideology of Russia and China and Venezuela and Cuba and, and Nicaragua, if you want to understand 
where the socialist movement is at right now, you should go watch the Saxton lectures. Um, they're a, an overview. They basically tell you everything you need to know about the city building tendency, about our ideology, about what we believe, which is not what the synthetic left believes. It's certainly not right wing, but it's different, right? And it's the anti-imperialist view. And what I what we teach at the Center for Political Innovation in the United States, it's very unique. People have never heard this stuff before. But you go to South America, very common. Right, go to Nicaragua. I was talking to the Sandinista Nicaraguans about it. They've heard all this before. They know this. They're not telling. I'm not telling anything they don't know. You go to Vietnam. You talk. They know this. Right. You go to China. They know this stuff already. Right. But in the United States, city builder, constructive, optimistic socialism is very rare. The synthetic left has really sunk its fangs into all left wing and Marxist spaces. So what we're preaching is pretty unique uh, in the United States. Um, so that's why you should check out the Saxton lectures. That's why you should promote the Saxton lectures. People need to see them. All right, folks, I'm tired. It's late. Um, so I think we're going to end the stream. I think there's tension between Stakhanovite ideal labor reforms, like the eight hour workday. The Stakhanovism was Russia as an underdeveloped country trying to work really, really hard to build socialism and raise the country up from poverty. Russia, Russia had not been fully industrialized. The eight-hour day is in Western capitalist countries. Workers are struggling with their employers for better treatment, and they make demands. Totally different context. If you're using socialism to build a country that's previously impoverished up from poverty, that's Stakhanovism. If you're in the West building a labor movement and trying to demand that the employers give you a better deal, that's a completely different thing. So it's like completely different context. It's apples and oranges, apples and oranges, my friend. And ultimately the goal in socialism is to build a society that's so prosperous that you don't have any work. People can just take what they can, take what they need, do what they can. That's the idea, right? The idea is to build a society of so much abundance that all inequality breaks down, all the need for the state breaks down. But countries that are just coming out of feudalism, that are not fully industrialized, that are building socialism, are going to mobilize the population and they're going to mobilize the population uh, to, to work very hard, to work selflessly, to build up their homeland. And that's not the same as, as workers struggling against their employer. No, in Maoism, they have what they call the new democratic revolution, which is where they give land to the peasants. Uh, it's called the new democratic revolution where they don't have socialism first. They have what they call new democracy. They redistribute land, uh, et cetera. You can read Mao's writing on new democracy. No, they don't want to skip the stage. That's wrong. Uh, they, they overturn feudalism. They give the peasants land. And then you know, they proceed with the new democratic revolution before they eventually move towards socialism. So no, that's not correct. All right. New upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. And while the danger of a new world war still exists, People of all countries must get prepared. Revolution is the main trend in the world today.
right. Thanks, folks. The danger of a new world war still exists, and the people of all countries must get prepared. Revolution is the main trend in the world today. We need a government of action to fight for working families. We need a government of action to fight for working families. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.